I think Argento, first of all, was a um, a younger man. He started directing films at the age of 29. That gave him the benefit of time, but it also gave him the benefit of being more hooked into the youth culture. And if you look at his movies, there are a lot of little things in his films that you may not notice, but it's very often in the art direction or it's elements of the characters that come through that you you, you don't realize, you know, if you don't pay attention to them and you realize that they're there for a specific reason, they're kind of alluding to a, a younger, more hip, more kind of... Uh, up-to-date sensibility than, than somebody like Fulci would have had as a, as a middle-aged man by that time. Hello and welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. Many of our listeners are likely to be familiar with the Italian masters of horror Mario Bava, Dario Argento, and Lucio Fulci. These three filmmakers reign supreme on not just their home turf, but around the world with iconic films such as Bava's Black Sunday, Black Sabbath, and A Bay of Blood, Argento's Deep Red, Suspiria, and Inferno, and Fulci's Zombie, City of the Living Dead, and The Beyond. All classic genre films that have endured and remain as taut, shocking, and inspired, as well as inspiring for generations of audiences and filmmakers. But what exactly is a giallo film? What are the sensibilities of these filmmakers and their fellow European genre maestros that gives them such a different energy than American horror? Why can't contemporary filmmakers recapture the giallo style? On this episode, our guest is author and film historian Troy Howarth. To call Troy an expert on giallo films and European horror is putting it mildly. Troy has written multiple extensive and revealing books on these films and the auteurs behind them, and you will likely have seen or heard him in the special features section, either in a documentary or a commentary, on some of the lavish re-releases of some of these classic movies, as well as the less obvious ones that are finally getting their time in the sun. I love Troy's writing, always illuminating and thoughtful. This is a man who not only does his homework, but whose love and appreciation for the artists and their work is front and center. So, pull some black gloves on and don't worry about the dubbing. It's time to delve into the world of European horror and giallo films with Troy Howarth. Hey, Troy. Hi. How are you? Well, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. We were supposed to talk about a week ago, and I was sick as hell, so we, here we are now. Let's dive right in. So first and foremost, I always like to get a sense of just sort of where people develop their love of, you know, whatever aspect of horror they work in and are involved in. So uh, I'm just curious, like, kind of where you grew up and where your, your stomping ground was. Uh, was, is, remains, probably always will be Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Um, been here the better part of my 45 years. Um leave a couple of times basically but kept circling back it's a uh it's a small town it's uh yeah if you've seen martin uh the george romero movie it gives you an idea yeah braddock is not too dissimilar dying steel towns there's not really that much to it but i'm not really cut out for big cities i get too um get too nervous um too uh, it's, it's too overwhelming for me because i'm used to being in the sticks yeah so um that's that's where i've been all my life i mean 
um, this is not a um, cultural mecca, so it's not a great place for being exposed to the arts and so forth. So people who uh, are around here, here who have kind of arty interests uh, tend to seek that out on their own because, you know, it's, it's not going to come to you. Um, you know, like so many people from my generation growing up in the 80s, watched a lot of um, late night horror movies uh, hosted, you know, back in the early 80s, uh, uh, the end of the Chiller Theater area with uh, Chili Billy Cardilli, who people will remember for his appearance in Night of the Living Dead. Um, and of course, his daughter Lori went on to star in Day of the Dead, so they're all connected. Um, and then other shows that came along too, like Haunted Hollywood and Commander USA's groovy movies, things like that. When I was too young to be up late watching these things, my mom, who was the one who got me interested in uh, sort of horror films in particular, uh, she used to record them and I'd watch them um, at a later time. Uh, I don't really have a kind of seminal moment. I wish that I did. I wish I could be one of those people who said, oh, it, it all started when I watched, you know, War of the Worlds or what. It's not really that way with me. I, I do not remember a time where I was not interested in this type of subject matter. I just always have been from the time I was very, very little. Um, my maternal grandmother died when I was just shy of three years old, and even she had commented on <laughs> me liking this stuff, said it was because my mom watched things like The Omen when she was pregnant with me. So maybe she was on to something. So I've, I'm always, I've always been drawn to horror and suspense, uh, the macabre, I guess, you know, in general. Uh, but my interest kind of expanded outward as I got older, started looking into other types of films and so forth. So, uh, but it's always, horror was my, my first real love, I guess you could say. Was your mom a horror fan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she liked, uh, she liked uh, in particular uh, Hammer films. Uh, so Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing were, uh, staples for me from the time I was a child. Lee became sort of a childhood hero for me. Um, I always, I always loved them in particular. Vincent Price, of course, Boris Karloff and Lugosi. But she, she was particularly into the Hammer uh, type stuff and and other uh, films as well. She adored The Omen, for example. Rosemary's Baby was another one. Um, you know, she wasn't so much into um, the 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 gorier films as such. Um, although she liked some of them, I, I know she, you know, there were certain films that she liked. She liked John Carpenter. I remember she, she always enjoyed his movies. Um, but, uh, you know, when I got into the Italian stuff later on, that was, that was a bridge too far for her. She couldn't get into that stuff at all. She didn't understand it and, uh, was, was quite perplexed by my love of it. But, uh, well, that's the way it is. Yeah. It's funny. Sometimes I, I've, I joke about sort of how you'll try to show a certain film or, or type of film to, a spouse or a close friend or something. And that I think every hardcore, I guess, horror fan has had that moment where you're trying to show something to someone and they're like, this is so weird. <laughs> or they're like, what is it about this that you are so into? Like, uh, I remember trying to show yeah. my husband uh, the, the new season of Twin Peaks started. And he's, oh, not, he's not like a cinephile per se. He loves movies, but he wasn't. So he hadn't, and he'd never seen a David Lynch movie though. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah so i put on the new season of twin peaks and he says well i've never seen the old show do you think that will matter i was like in a way no in a way it won't in a way i guess it would but in another way it won't so we're watching and about four episodes in he, he turns to me he's like what the fuck is this about 
was like, never Good question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a similar experience. A girl that I was with, um, uh, had wanted to see Rosemary's baby because I'd said so many times about what a great movie it was. So I, I brought it over and we're watching it. And as you know, the movie starts slow. Uh, the movie deliberately kind of takes its time. It wants to establish an atmosphere of normality and everything before the weird starts, stuff starts to come in. And you get into the, um, the dream sequence. Well, is it a dream or is it not a dream where she believes that she's being uh, impregnated by the devil? And to me, this is one of the most extraordinary scenes I've ever seen. Probably the best dream sequence in a film ever because most dream sequences you know, with all the sort of distorted filters and weird colors and things like people don't dream like that. That's just cinematic shorthand. But this is like, this feels like a real dream. It's just sort of disorienting and all these weird little touches and things. I'm sitting there just, you know, you know, that, that, that feeling you get when you're showing somebody something you love and you're just like, you know, you're so excited. They must be thinking it's been And she looked at me and said, this is probably the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. And um, I was crushed. I, I said, well, if you don't like this, you know, we should probably turn it off. She said, no, no, leave it out. We'll, we'll finish it. Well, she did end up liking it. You know, she said they should have just cut out all that crap at the, at the beginning. I said, no, that's really wouldn't, wouldn't make the same film. Um, but yes, that was a very, I remember just that feeling of um, abject uh, dejection when she said it was such a, a bad film. But, you know, it's interesting to see how people react just the same, even if it's not always the way that you would hope that they would. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's funny too, because I, I, I think also horror fans, I maybe sci-fi fans are like this too, I think, but tend to have like, you know, unapologetically weird taste sometimes or, 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 or weird by sort of the, the conventional idea of what, you know, people like in cinema or, or have, have taste in, but but I always found that it's like, you know, you can get down in really these really deep rabbit holes with horror buffs of like that, you know, they don't just like horror movies. They like, you know, the rubber monster movies of the 80s, you know, the Beekler type fair era more than they like, you know, uh, this kind of person or they're not that kind of special fix. And they like just Rob Boteen stuff or, you know, I mean, people get really yeah. specific yeah. when they define sort of what they like. Do you remember sort of how you started to sort of figure out that? you know, specifically European cult cinema was kind of your, the area you wanted to dabble in? Yeah, I suppose. Uh, in in a weird sort of way, it was just a sort of remarkable coincidence that, that happened. When I graduated from high school in 1995, I decided that I wanted to take a year off uh, before going on to college. And my parents said that would be fine, but you can't just sit around and do nothing. So I, I was working all of my friends had sort of splintered off and some had joined the military, some had gone to college and, you know, they were out of town. So I was pretty much left alone, which I'm kind of a, you know, a lone wolf type anyway. It didn't really matter to me too much. And, and during that time, just coincidentally, I was trying to get a better copy of Baron Blood, Mario Bava film, um, which was the very first uh, Bava film I ever saw, probably the first Italian film I ever saw. And... Um, uh, I had this copy, this ancient copy that actually my mom had recorded off of late night TV. That's how I had seen it. And I was trying to get a hold of a better copy. At that time, it was impossible. You couldn't get a decent version of it. I thought, okay, well, I guess that's that. Within just a matter of days, I happened to pick up an issue of Fangoria. And um, this thing in there about, um, there was a laser disc release of Baron Blood and Lisa and the Devil in their original director's cuts and widescreen. I mean, oh, this was, you know, amazing, amazing coincidence. 
Um, so I, I picked that up, of course, as soon as it became available. And as I was watching more and more of his movies, I became really obsessed with them, the look of them, the style of them, uh, the atmosphere, the, the general sort of strangeness of the films. And that kind of took me down that rabbit hole, and I started exploring Argento more, and then Fulci and, and Jess Franco and all these other people. And Bava in particular just struck me as somebody who was extraordinarily underrated, which he was at that time. Um, he's since been rehabilitated, and, and I suppose, you know, um, he's he's fairly seriously regarded by, you know, a certain level of critic anyway, maybe not the mainstream so much. Um, but at that time, there were no books in English on him. Um, I had no idea that there was a book in the works. It had been in the works for many years at that point. I had no idea. I'm glad I didn't know because if I had, I probably wouldn't have done it. I decided that I was going to write something about Bava. Um, that wasn't intended to be a book originally because the idea of me writing a book was just like absurd. I mean, what do I know about writing a book? I'm just in college. I, you know, who wants to read a book from me? But I, I wrote this uh, sort of, it almost became like a monograph, and I showed it to a professor. By this point, I'm in college, and I had a, a film, uh, a professor who taught a film course as well as a, a literature course. So he was a perfect person to show it to. And he said, that you've got a book here. You know, you've got to work on it, and it's got to be expanded and all that, but you've got the start of a book here, which, you know, again, I thought was insane, but decided to pursue it. And that was what really got it all started. Uh, you know, it, it, it progressed fitfully from there. It was a long period of time where I didn't do any follow-ups or anything because, um, you know, uh, a variety of different reasons came into it. But then, you know, with about 2013 came back and really just started hitting the ground, putting out a lot of books. You know, some would say too many, but <laughs> it's just been keeping very busy since then. And, uh, it was just, it was uh, <clears throat> Bava in particular was what really fascinated me and what really appealed to me. And I thought, you know, I want to pay this man some kind of homage, some kind of tribute, because I felt that he deserved it. And uh, at that time, it was the uh, it was the first book that came out in English about him. So, um, you know, I, I was able to do what I set out to do, although, again, it was in a sort of strange way that I didn't really, never would have been imagined that I would actually write a book, but there I was, you know, uh, it came out in 2002 after I'd already been out of college for two years, but the bulk of it was written when I was in college. Where did you go to college? Uh, University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown, so, you know, not, not far from my home, which meant that I didn't have to uh, live on campus or anything like that, um, but I uh, had some great experiences there, made some good friends. And in point of fact, uh, some friends that I made when I was at college, I turned on to these movies um, because uh, some of them took an interest and uh, people would come over and we'd, we'd um, sometimes get pizza and, and sit there and watch one or one of these movies and then go out to the bar afterwards. And everybody seemed to really enjoy um, seeing those films. And again, we're very uh, impressed by just how how strange they were, you know, especially if you're not used to it and you're coming to films like this really from a, a fairly mainstream perspective and what you're used to is the kind of things that you see at the Cineplex, these are really weird movies. Um, they're very, um, they're handcrafted in a way that, uh, you know, big movies don't tend to be, especially now that we've gotten into the computer era and uh, they just have a sort of different sensibility. So I, I think that was why for a lot of my friends, they could see the appeal um, even if they weren't maybe necessarily as crazy about them as I was, but some of them went over very, very well indeed, and they, they could really appreciate them.
you know, you've mentioned Bava and Argento and Fulci, but who are some of the, you know, other than those names, who are some of the kind of um, <clears throat> the most influential names in in European horror that you can think of outside of those three? I, I don't know that I can answer as, you know, who is who's most influential other than them, because, you know, they're the big ones that people refer to. And of course, you could also, you know, it's not horror, but in terms of genre cinema, uh, the Italian Western Sergio Leone is a big influential figure as well you know these are directors who kind of made a big imprint and made films that other people wanted to uh cash in on or or imitate in some way shape or form they kind of established trends um i suppose maybe to a certain extent um people like enzo castellari in his crime films had a certain influence certainly on tarantino um we could say the same of umberto lenzi uh with his particularly his crime films uh, as well as some of his um, sort of splattery type films, cannibal films and so forth. And we could add Deodato in there too with uh, Cannibal Holocaust. Um, but uh, some of the some of the most interesting directors didn't necessarily make any kind of a big splash in their day. They weren't really taken very seriously uh, and have been kind of ignored down through the years. But when you look at their work, they've, they've made some really good, interesting films that are worth seeking out. I don't know if I'd say that they're terribly influential, but they're good. I'm always curious too when you look at sort of some of the works of you know if you look at kind of the 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 masters of horror as they're sort of Doug Carpenter and Craven and all those guys when you look at their kind of seminal films did you ever notice sort of the influence of some of the genre directors that are European that that I know those filmmakers were fans of Carpenter has admitted it um Carpenter is a fan of of Argento in particular actually they're very good friends too um, and he's admitted that, that the Halloween theme was, was 100%, you know, uh, kind of based on the Deep Red theme. But don't forget the Deep Red theme was also based on the Tubular Bells music, which was used in The Exorcist. So there's always this kind of chain of influences that come. Actually, speaking of The Exorcist, William Friedkin is a, has gone on record as saying that Mario Bava and Dario Argento were his two favorite Italian directors. Um, he kind of shocked the Italian press, because this is an Oscar-winning director. This is somebody who's taken seriously. And for him to go out and give an interview in the Italian press and basically say, yeah, you know, Fellini's fine, but I really like Mario Bava and Dario Argento. The Italian press was kind of you know, shocked yeah. by that. Um, you know, definitely Carpenter has alluded to it for sure. Um, Joe Dante has talked about it a lot. He loved Mario Bava. And you can see that in some of his films, in particular, the really colorful lighting in something like The Howling, for example. Um, He's, he's very, very, you know, consciously sort of paying homage to Bava with uh, elements like that. So um, Craven never talked about anybody like that, um, you know, in terms of an influence on him. And I can't really see it too much myself, but uh, definitely, definitely Carpenter and Dante at the very least, though. And Romero, I think, definitely had some, uh, some of that. A little. I mean, you know, it's interesting because Night of the Living Dead is, is a... Uh, you know, it's a black and white film and so forth, so it doesn't really show the Italian influence so much uh, as, as all that. But later on, after having worked with Argento on a couple of projects, of course, as you know, Argento helped to co-finance uh, Dawn of the Dead. And then they co-directed the Edgar Allan Poe anthology called Two Evil Eyes Together. Um, Argento did one half, Romero did the other half. And uh, Romero was a, was a big fan of Argento's very expressive visuals, and he tried to kind of uh, pay homage to that in particular in the dark half there's some very argento type sequences in the dark half um but also i think to a certain extent you can see it in uh, creep show as well although that's also very much based on the uh the ec comics aesthetic so you know again there's a whole 
slew of influences that are coming in. But yeah, definitely Romero was, uh, you know, he he never talked about Bava. He never talked about uh, Fulci, to the best of my knowledge, never really talked about Fulci, perhaps for obvious reasons, because uh, there was a lot of controversy over Zombie being a ripoff, which I don't think it really is, but uh, it was a cash-in, which is slightly different. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he did definitely talk a lot about Argento, and I think there was some, there was definitely some influence there. Yeah, it's interesting to see, too, because, like, I think, um, I remember when I was working with Romero, uh, we would get just chatting about various filmmakers and, you know, movies that we liked. or But a lot of movies that he talked about were European films. He seemed to have, especially European dramas. He really had a thing for, like, these kind of chamber pieces, almost. Well, he loved Michael Powell. I know that. Uh, so he talked a lot about uh, Tales of Hoffman and uh, the influence of Michael Powell had on him uh was was pretty tremendous uh which you wouldn't necessarily think that at first glance but once you think about it a little bit more especially if you're familiar with those types of films you, you can see it a little bit more clearly yeah i mean do you think when fulci did something like zombie that he was thinking okay well you know what did romero do and i gotta kind of do my own version of that or do you think he just went fuck it i'm gonna do my thing here from the get-go like fulci is a oh he said he said he, he was going to do his own thing, without a doubt. The film was written. Um, it, it's important to understand, Fulci very often co-wrote his films. He was involved in developing his films and, and writing them. Um, he did not write Zombie because Zombie was written uh, pretty much on commission uh, as, a, as, a, as a ripoff of Dawn of the Dead. That was the idea. Dawn of the Dead had come out in Italy. It actually came out in Italy first. It came out in Italy before it came out in America. It was the... the, you know, the European Dario Argento cut the, uh, the version that he supervised so it's edited slightly differently and it has all goblin music in it as opposed to goblin with a lot of library music which uh, frankly I think works a lot better uh, in the American version whereas Argento kind of really layers on the goblin music loud and, and maybe too much for my taste uh, throughout the European version but it come out in Italy as zombie um, and uh, that's why zombie Fulci Zombie was called Zombie Dewey or Zombie 2 in Italy because they were selling it as kind of a, a sequel slash ripoff. Um, Fulci was not originally supposed to direct it. It was originally uh, offered to Castellari, who I mentioned before, whose who specialty was, was action movies. And Castellari said, you know, I don't really think this is my type of subject matter, but you know who I think would do really well by this is Lucio Fulci. Um, so... Fulci was available because Fulci was going through a slump in his career. He had, he had made a, a film called The Psychic, which was a big flop. Um, so he was doing some stuff for television and so forth, and his, his film career really wasn't going anywhere at that point. Um, he comes on to Zombie, and he doesn't want to fall into that trap of making a ripoff of a popular film. So he's looking more towards old-fashioned zombie films like White Zombie, Plague of the Zombies, I Walk with the Zombie, things like that based around voodoo, based around legends and superstition, moody kind of horror films. And that's what you get. So with Zombie, you have a very moody, atmospheric movie, but it's also punctuated with scenes of extraordinary violence, which uh, is far, far beyond anything that somebody like Jacques Denaire would ever have shown. Um, so I think it's that contrast between the, the kind of really eerie, poetic quality that the movie's got and also it's really strong, in-your-face, visceral violence that really made it such an interesting film. And it's one of the reasons the movie holds up. It's a legitimately really good film, whereas if you look at some of the other movies that were made in the similar kind of style at that time, like Zombie Holocaust, 
or Hell of the Living Dead, um, they're they're pretty poor, really. I mean, you can tell they're ripping off Romero, whereas Fulci's definitely doing his own thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just looking sort of at, at the books you've written, you know, and you've written on Bava, Klaus Kinski, Paul Nashi, Fulci, Carpenter, and then upcoming you have a, a book about Argento. How do you sort of decide with, so, and, you know, in some of these cases, these people, um, there is a lot out there about them. So how do you sort of decide, okay, I'm going to write a book on this particular person and then go, okay, this is what I'll be able to offer that will be, you know, different than just all this other stuff that might be out there about some of these high-profile people. Well, I'll give a slight correction. The Argento book's out already. That's already available. Um, the book on Lindsay is upcoming. So that's um, – Argento is a good example of that because that was something that my publisher at Midnight Marquee a number of years ago had said he'd really like to publish a book on Argento. And at the time I said, there's so many books out about him. I don't think there's anything I could say that's going to be interesting or it's going to be different or whatever. So at the time I said, you know, I'd much rather do a book on Fulci. So that's why I did that. At the time, um, Stephen Thrower's book was out, um, Beyond Terror. And um, there were various other ones. I mean, of course, there are books written in other languages that I've never read because I'm not multilingual. Uh, there's a very authoritative book on Fulci in uh, Italian, for example. I can't remember the writer's name. Um, but, uh, you know, at that time I decided there's not so much out there on Fulci. He's a very interesting director. And because I felt, quite frankly, as much as I liked Trower's book, and I think it's got many wonderful things in it, I felt like he kind of gave a short trip to a lot of Fulci's films by, you know, really focusing too much on the horror movies and not enough on some of the earlier. This is a man who worked for 20 years you know, directing comedies, musicals, westerns, all these different types of pictures. And it seemed like a lot of that stuff just kind of got pushed to the side a little bit. Nobody really wanted to talk about that. So I decided that I would write a book that would kind of give equal space to all the different films, and that's why I decided to do that one. Um, Bava, I've already explained, at that time there wouldn't, there was nothing in English on him, certainly in a book form, so that was easy. Carpenter is actually one that I wanted to do after the, the Bava book originally came out in 2002 and I suggested it to my publisher at the time and they didn't seem terribly enthusiastic about the idea and that kind of took the wind out of my sails. I mean, they didn't say they wouldn't do it. They just said, well, you know, let's see. And I, uh, you know, without having a real kind of enthusiastic support, uh, I kind of second guessed myself. And, and also because he was still making films at that time, I thought, yeah, maybe, maybe I should wait. So, it was a project I kept coming back to, kept circling back to over and over again. I knew I wanted to do it at some point because he's, you know, he's had such a huge impact on my life, his movies, his music. I mean, just I'm such a fan. Uh, I wanted to pay him some kind of a tribute. So eventually just decided, OK, now the time's come and I was able to do it. And that was a big weight off my shoulders to know I finally did that one because I felt that was, you know, I, I could stop now because I've done really what I wanted to do, even if. Uh, you know, inevitably, you always feel you could do better. But I was happy with how the how the Carpenter book turned out. Um, other books just kind of, they just kind of, you know, I, I was at a Monster Bash. I forget what year it was. And um, a guy uh, who's a friend of mine who runs the Paul Nashi cast uh, named Rod Barnett. And, and a couple of other people had said to me, you know, there, there needs to be a book on Paul Nashi. There needs to be something out there. And I just got to thinking about it and thought, okay, you know, why not? I like Nashi, so let's let's do it. And that ended up, you know, being a big project. 
Uh, Lindsay was somebody that uh, had been proposed to me a long time ago as well, and I thought, ah, I don't, you know, I don't really want to do that. I wasn't interested then, but then all of a sudden the idea had appeal. So it's it's sometimes just kind of random. It just, you know, you don't. It just seems like a, I guess it just seems like a good idea at the time. Um, Kinski was very much I thought would be a relatively easy project. You know, I knew that he made a lot of movies. But I figured, you know, he's an actor. It's 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 a different kind of a thing. You know, it's not they're not his films. He's just bringing something to it, usually in a small part because he he tended to play small parts, so he could do lots of movies. Um, and that ended up being a, a nightmare of a book to write because it was you know there were so many different components and so many movies to see and and uh, get into discussing and uh, there were just other problems that were going on at that time that made that a difficult project to do. Um, but with Argento, I finally did decide that I would do that one um, because I was in contact with a friend who I, I gave a special credit on the book, uh, Rob Bruston, who's an Englishman, who is actually friends with Argento and, and with Argento's family. And I realized, oh, boy, you know, this is kind of a golden opportunity because being in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, I'm very limited who I can get and who I have access to and, and everything. So to have somebody who really has this kind of in with with Argento was a big benefit and I thought well I'd be foolish to turn that down um so I went to Rob and I said well if I did a book you know would you be able to help me and get some interviews and everything and, and he did so I was only too happy to do that and, and part of the reason I was happy to do that too was also because very often it seems to be the case with these uh these directors that they hit a period in their career when their stars wane and they're not really as popular as they used to be and uh, sometimes it's justified, but very often I don't think it's really very fair. And I felt like there was a lot to be said about Argento's work in particular over the last 20 years that tends to get dumped on a lot. But I thought maybe I should uh, pick up the torch for that. So I don't know. That's a rambling answer, but I hope I answered you. No, I mean, I think it, it, it speaks to that. Would it be fair to say that it's more from a perspective of not that you'll identify, oh, you know, there's... It's not strictly a criteria. There's this person that's that I think is great that there's not ever information about, but rather, you know, just you saying, I think I'm going to bring my own outlook to, to shaping the information about this person and presenting that. Yeah, I've found and I've dis I discovered this the hard way early on, and I've, I've run into it a lot um, in my you know so-called career doing this, which is very much a sideline thing. I, I have an eight to four job. This is this isn't my how I earn my daily bread, so to speak. It's something I do on the side that I love doing because I love these films. But I discovered early on that uh, there's a lot of, um, they call it gatekeeping uh, now, but there's also a lot of um, proprietary attitude that people have where they think they own certain subjects and uh, they seem to be actively discouraging people from, from writing books. And my attitude's always been, I think, you know, the more the better. They're not all good. Um, you know, there, there are terrible books out there about Jallo films, for example. I read them. I thought they were terrible. I thought they brought nothing to it, but I don't mind that they exist because if they exist means that there's people out there that's reading them and hopefully it's encouraging them to pick these movies up and look at them. And that's the ultimate goal. Um, I ran into, a, a you know, a, a lot of uh, negativity from a, a particular individual I won't name um, when I decided to do this Paul Nashie book. Uh, who just relentlessly attacked me for doing this? Like, how dare you? And you know, how dare I not go and kiss his ring by you know, getting his permission to write the book? As if anybody owns the legacy. 
and in point of fact, had Nashi's own sons on my side, you know, ha happy to participate and help support such a book. Um, so you do run into that. There's there's this sort of weird mentality that people have that, you know, now there are <clears throat> admittedly certain things that I'd be willing to say, I'm not right. I'm not going to write a book on this because there are so many. Um, I would not attempt to write a book about Hammer Films at this point because there are so many. I mean, my God, there are books that are devoted to every facet of Hammer Films at this point, and I don't think that I'd be able to do anything that would stand out from the crowd. Um, but, I mean, if people want to do it, good for them. The goal is ultimately to, to celebrate the films and keep the films alive as long as we talk about these people, as long as we continue to celebrate them and what they did. Um, they have attained immortality. And the moment we stop talking about them and the moment we're not discussing them anymore, they, they're, then they're truly dead. Yeah. It's also to me always interesting in that, you know, and I'm sure you've witnessed a fair amount of this, but film culture can have, you know, some pretty curmudgeon disgruntled people who, who will write a whole book on a subject. And then I'll read the book. You'd be like, odd that they chose to write a whole book on this filmmaker yeah. and they don't seem to really like most of their work. <laughs> Yeah. that kind of film journalism is fairly confusing to me yeah there's a book on hammer that's kind of like that the guy doesn't really seem to like most of their film but it's interesting in a way because you know it's it, the alternative can be very irritating too when somebody just sits there and just oh it's just wonderful everything's wonderful i mean you know bring a little balance i mean when i write about uh any of the people i've written about none of them are completely you know free of um duds and it's okay to say, well, Dracula, Argento's Dracula is a lousy movie. It doesn't mean that I have to give up my Argento fan badge. Yeah. Um, it just means that, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you my honest opinion, which I think is interesting if somebody has, you know, you like some things, you don't like others, as long as you can explain why, as long as you can articulate your reasons why you like certain things and why you don't like certain things. So as long as it's not just turning into salivating over everything and also just attacking everything. Mm -hmm. um, so a mix of that is fine. But when we, it is true, when you read certain things and you think, my God, it doesn't seem like you really like much of anything. I don't know why you spent all this time writing a book about it. Yeah. Um, I have encountered that a few times and that is strange. Um, but I'll say the, the alternative is, is true too. I mentioned hammer films, for example, and I've read some that just, you know, Oh, every Hammer film is just wonderful. And, and no, they're really not. They made some terrible films. So um, the ideal, I think, is to have a kind of a more grounded perspective. But, you know, if you're just going to sit there and just knock everything and, and attack everything and tear everything to pieces, that gets boring, too. I think from your writing that, you know, I've read several of your books now, it seems like you try to keep a fairly balanced outlook on the films of the people you're writing about. Um you know, and based on what you just said, that sounds like that's pretty intentional. You don't want it to just be a love fest, but you don't want to just sit there and rip on these filmmakers. No, either. no I mean, even the bad films, usually there's something good in them. I mentioned Argento's Dracula. There are there are a handful of really beautiful shots in that film, and there's at least one great sequence. Um, so even amid that sort of burning dumpster fire of a film, there are moments where you can see, you know, a real filmmaker. Um, so, and, and that's what I try to do with commentary work too, is, you know, you know, if I accept to do something, if somebody asks me to do a commentary on a film and I've had to turn a few down that I've I'm like, I can't, I'm not going to be able to say anything positive about this. You know, <laughs> right. there's no point in my doing this because I don't want to just sit there and trash it the whole way through. But usually I figure if I can talk about it in some way, if I can put it, you know, just talk about the context it was made in, 
Is it indicative of some kind of, you know, uh, sort of weird trend? And so like Jallo in Venice, for example, I was hired to do. And not a great film, not, not even a good film, but an interesting, grubby, sort of porno Jallo hybrid that I thought, okay, I can talk a lot about the state of the industry at this time, why films like this were coming, the desperation and everything, and kind of throw out the little bit of praise here and there about some things that I do like. If you're just going to sit there and tear something apart the whole the whole time, it, it would be, you know, uh, it would be disappointing. I remember listening to a commentary for um, Blackula, which is a movie I love with zero irony. I, I, I'm, I'm not making fun. I love that film so much. I think it's so entertaining. I remember listening to it and thinking, God, this guy just doesn't seem like he likes this movie very much. It was very disappointing. So I wouldn't want to do that, you know, in, in, in that context or in my books either. Um, usually you can find something good. John Carpenter's Village of the Damned, I think, is is probably my least favorite of his films. But, you know, when I revisited for the book and started breaking it down and talking about it, I thought, well, you know, at least the first half hour or so is pretty good. Yeah. You know, it starts off promisingly. It's got good stuff in the beginning, and then it just goes, you know. Um, but that's okay. I mean, you know, if you can find the good and also find the bad, too. So you're not just sitting there the whole time just, oh, isn't this wonderful? And Oh, is this, everything is just it's just so fantastic, and you know that that can get a little it can get a little sickening sometimes. Yeah, I read a book recently. It was about um, I think it was about Empire, the Charlie Band company, and mm-hmm. the, the whole book though was like has it was disappointing because I re, when I read a book like that, and it was a pretty long book. It's because uh, of course not all of those Empire films are great, but I like a lot of them. Uh, and if I'm going to read a whole, you know like book this thick about it it's probably because i like it the book was pretty much just ripping on all the empire movies and i was like why would you that's such a weird approach to this book <laughs> like it takes time to write a book i mean that's that's kind of captain obvious i know but it's true i mean it takes time um some of us are faster than others i'm a reasonably fast writer i i don't think of myself as reckless but it doesn't take me long i just you know, I prepare and then I write it and I don't, I don't take forever. I just, you know, it takes as long as it takes. Some people would take some years to write a book. I mean, whatever works for you, but if you can invest all that time. God, I'd want it to be on something that I at least like. Um, so, you know, like going back to Argento, it was never an issue of not wanting to invest the time to write something about him. It was just concerned that there were so many books. Yeah. But then part of that too is reading those books and thinking, well, you know, I really like this one. This one's got some good things in it. These other three or four, they're not so hot. So, all right, you know, there's room enough on the shelf for another one. There's always room on the shelf for more. I just there are certain things, as like like with the hammer thing. I said as much as I love those films, I, I would see no point. I, I'd feel like I was wasting my time. I know people would buy it. I know the the real diehards would be all about it and everything, and that's fine. But it's like, uh, it's been done to death at this point. Maybe we need a little bit of a. A little bit of a break before something like that would happen again but uh uh that's you know that's that's up to the individual writer it just it's bizarre to me you know if you're gonna if you decide well i'm gonna write a book about canon films i know there's a book out there about canon i've not read it i'm not commenting on the book because i've not read it i don't know what it's like but hopefully the person who wrote it actually likes those movies because otherwise why would you want to just waste all that time talking about it? well it's also served to me kind of I don't know, counterintuitive for what you would think your readers are going to want too. Generally, someone who's going to read an entire book on a subject, uh, at least yeah. if it's about films, a, a, a catalog of films, probably likes the films. Um, yeah, you'd think so. 
I mean, I've read uh, there's 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 been other ones. I won't mention any names, but there's a writer who, um, you know, has written a lot about the old Universal horror films, for example, and and very often he likes to kind of take pot shots. And it just it seems sometimes as if you're there's there's a part of, of fandom in which I don't understand. And I've never really appreciated or enjoyed, and uh, you know, hopefully, I won't upset too many people by saying this, but I, I hate that expression, monster kid. I find it so cringy and and regressive and kind of condescending because it it implies that the only way you can like these movies is if you're still a kid at heart. I don't think that's true at all. Um, but at the same time, you know, you got the ones who are who are into that, but some people want to kind of rebel against that. And so they want to show how objective they are by sort of, you know, being sort of snide and condescending and uh, nitpicky about things that, you know, really don't need to be nitpicked too much about. Um, so that that can be a problem, too. I mean, it's true. I mean, people are going to pick up a book on the topic, presumably because they, well, either they want to, they want to or they have to read it for whatever reason. Um, you know, I think it's better to convey a certain degree of passion and enthusiasm opposed to just sitting there and trashing it. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I find, you know, in the horror community, you go to if you go to conventions and that kind of thing, you see all kind of different casts of horror fans, you know, the slasher fans, the universal fans, you know, all these different sort of groupings that people kind of align yeah. with. Uh, and certainly, you know, the, the sort of the monster kid thing, the, the, you know, famous monsters and then the fango people, you know, it's like there's all these these groupings. Uh, but I find sometimes like what can be alien, I think, for people who are kind of new to the genre scene, it can be that exact thing where, you know, I remember being at a convention with a friend of mine uh, who was really enjoying it, but was sort of newly initiated to horror conventions. And he said to a fellow that we were talking to, um, I think Jess Franco was who they were talking about. And he said, oh, I don't I don't know that director. Well, they looked at him like he was an imposter and ridiculed him. And it was just like, you don't know who Jess Franco is. And I was like, see, this is the bullshit that kind of turns some people off. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's the gatekeeper. That's the gatekeeper thing where um, I've been seeing a lot about I don't watch um, Stranger Things, not not because I have anything against it, although I'm not a big I'm not a big nostalgia person. I mean, we all have a certain degree of nostalgia, but you know, something's got to something's got to appeal to me more, just on the level of oh, it's so '80s or so '90s. Eh, I lived through that. I don't. I don't need it. Because um, I'm not knocking it, but it was there was this uh, recent thing about a Kate Bush song in one of the episodes, and Kate Bush is incredibly popular now because of it. And all these people were being very snooty about it and snobby about it. Well, I was a fan way back. When. Well, who cares? I mean, it's okay. I mean, if people are discovering this now, then that's a good thing. And that's what we should be doing, you know, writing books and, and you know, talking about these movies and so forth is hopefully reaching a, uh, a place where more and more people are going to be interested in these things. Um, you know, uh, I, I've often thought that if um, if I ever had a, a an offspring, um, I would try to expose them to old movies when they were very young in the way that I was, because before you get to school and before your friends and, you know, your sort of peers and everything start to kind of have an influence on you, you're just your own little sort of unspoiled thing. And you're open to all kinds of, of experiences and you're, you're, you don't have these prejudices. It's not until you, you know, I, I mean, in general, anyway, I think it's not until you're around other kids and they start telling you, oh, that stuff's, that's old, that's no good, black and white, that's terrible. 
if you expose children, you know, at a young age to these things and get them used to it, then it's not so strange and it's not so alien. It should be the same thing with these movies as well. If you can get somebody interested enough that they want to learn, don't alienate them then by being snide towards them and saying, well, you you don't know that uh, Lucio Fulci's first movie was made in 1959. You're not much of a fan, are you? That's a ridiculous thing to do, which, and uh, but it, it happens a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think it's particularly funny in, in, in that scenario I was describing to because what made me sort of laugh at it, like I'm a, a pretty diehard horror fan, have been since I was a kid and, uh, you know, have my own tastes or whatever. But like someone like Jess Franco, too, like you can be a horror fan your whole life and never encounter a Jess Franco film if you're not, you know, looking in certain channels. So I just yeah. thought that was a funny person to pick on someone about, too, because that's not really a, I don't think Jess Franco would be considered a mainstream filmmaker. I even had this discussion with people recently. I mean, he's he's put into the horror genre and understandably so, but he's not a conventional horror director at all. Um, he really wasn't trying to make scary movies. I mean, that's the thing. He wasn't really interested in doing that. Um, he he worked with genre sort of tropes and things and usually combined it with other elements, in particular eroticism. Um, but he's not really, he's, he's not a typical horror director at all. So it's sort of strange to bracket him in with the other people um, because, you know, if you look at his filmography, which is huge, and he made so many different films, there are relatively few conventional horror films in that group. You know, things like Count Dracula with Christopher Lee and The Awful Dr. Orloff and Faceless and things like that, but there aren't a ton of those. Um, and no, he's not the least bit mainstream at all. So for somebody to, uh, you know, be, be Franco-shamed, so to speak, is ridiculous. <laughs> I want to name off a few uh, European filmmakers, and if you could sort of provide an access point for people listening to the podcast who might be new to some of these people... In terms of like, just give me a little mini bio, few sentences on this person, and recommend a couple early films of theirs for for newbies. So we've talked about Bava, but what's what sort of tell people a bit about Mario Bava's? You know, the kind of filmmaker he is, where he worked, when he worked, and and and, and a go to film of his for you. Well, he was a cinematographer before he was a director, so obviously very very visual. Um, you know, he'd been a cinematographer going all the way back to the late thirties through the 40s into the 50s, um, he ended up directing a number of films without credit, not entirely, but usually taking over for directors who abandoned projects or, or directing, you know, uh, large sections of the movie when they were running behind, things like that. You know, he was involved in, um, you know, really completing films like uh, Hercules, for example, with Steve Reeves. He directed a good chunk of that. Um really established himself also as a great special effects artist. And a lot of the special effects that he did, which were really, you know, cheap effects. I mean, it was matte paintings and smoke and mirror tricks and so forth. Even to this day in the age of high def transfers and so forth holds up really, really well. I mean, he was extraordinarily talented. So he was kind of unlike a lot of the other people um, that we would talk about. He was kind of his own one man film crew. Um, which is one of the reasons that his work is as consistent as it is. He, he didn't, you know, he was used to working on low budgets. It wasn't an issue for him. As a matter of fact, he only ever worked on a large budget once. He hated it and decided that he wanted to go back to making cheap films where he had control and he'd have producers breathing over his shoulder and everything. Um, so, you know, as a director, worked in a variety of different genres, but best known for his horror films and his thrillers. Um, a great entry point, uh, you know, 
it's it's difficult. Uh, everybody's different as to their tastes, but if you're particularly interested in the Jallo films, I'd say Blood and Black Lace is a great introduction. If you're into the kind of gothic horror films, uh, I mentioned Black Sunday, but also The Whip and the Body, which is a great kind of uh, kinky uh, ghost story with an S&M twist with Christopher Lee. Um, that's a really terrific movie as well. Um, but you you know really have a hard time going wrong with any Bava film. They all kind of have their points of interest. Um, Dario Argento. Tell us a bit about Dario. Well, Argento started off as a critic. Um, he had uh, he had been a, a film critic for uh, a paper in Italy uh, before gradually working into becoming a screenwriter. Never intended to become a director. He wasn't interested in directing. Um, he knew about you know, the process of making films from his interviewing various directors like Fritz Lang and John Huston and uh, various other people. Um, and from having worked with people like Sergio Leone, he worked on the uh, original screen story for Once Upon a Time in the West, for example. Um, but soft film sets is very sort of chaotic and confrontational and wasn't something he really wanted to do. But he wrote a script uh, for a thriller. It's actually an uncredited adaptation of a book by Frederick Brown called The Screaming Mimi. Uh, and he made uh, he wrote a script called The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, hence uh, the title uh, based on a very important clue in the movie, uh, which helped to unmask the murderer at the end. Um, he liked that script so much, was so happy with it, and was worried that it would be given over to a director of mediocre talent. So he uh, basically uh, his his father was a producer, which is a big help when you're trying to break into directing films. And, uh, you know, he he uh, was able to get. Uh, the go-ahead to direct the movie himself, and uh, it was a hit. Uh, not straight off the bat, but it ended up becoming very successful. So he established himself as kind of Italy's... They, they kind of refer to him as the Italian Hitchcock, which is all wrong in a way. Hitchcock's films are very different from his. They're they're much more sort of cold and rational, and, and Argento's films are much more sort of fiery and, uh, uh, you know, irrational. But... Uh, you know, established himself as a kind of major auteur level filmmaker. Unlike a lot of these other guys, he actually was able to make movies on big budgets uh, with long schedules and creative control and developing films in a way that, that major kind of, you know, quote unquote, auteur filmmakers do. Um, if you're looking to kind of get a sense of his filmography, I mentioned before, Burb of the Crystal Plumage is a great intro because it's a, it's a really good, strong, confident debut. Uh, but if you want to see him at his very best, and, uh, you know, kind of really the Italian thriller at its best, too, I would recommend Deep Red. All right. Fulci. Lucio Fulci. Fulci, a very uh, tempestuous, fiery individual, a man who uh, was notorious for looking like a slob. Um, it, they, they called him Lucio Pulci because Pulci is Italian for fleas. Um, he, he was uh, very unconcerned about his appearance, so very often... Uh, uh, coffee stains and so forth all over his sweaters and things. Didn't really care about that. Was just very focused on making his movies. But a very cultured man, very intelligent, very bright, very erudite, um, but also incredibly, incredibly foul-mouthed and, and loved to shock people by uh, uh, saying outrageous things. And so he was this kind of fascinating uh, contradiction in many respects. Very intelligent, cultured man who was also incredibly sort of foul-mouthed and, and disagreeable. Um, had been an assistant director and a writer for a number of years before he started directing, directing comedies, musicals, westerns, science fiction, thrillers, you name it. He dabbled in just about everything and crucially did just about everything very well. Um, became popular at the end of his career, really. He'd been directing for 20 years when Zombie came along. 
uh, and kind of reinvented him as uh, the kind of alternative to Argento. Argento was focusing more on thrillers, the Jallo films. Uh, Fulci had also made Jalli in the 70s. Uh, some of his very best films were Jalli, as a matter of fact. Um, but Fulci became known for making really gory, in-your-face, uh, violent horror films, uh, which carried him through to the end of his life. Um, if you want to see Fulci at his very best, I would say Don't Torture a Duckling, a Jallo he made in 1972, which I think is a masterpiece. All right. Uh, how about now? We've said he's kind of ish horror, but you talk Franco like so. If we're talking a bit about yeah. Franco, uh, tell us a bit about him. But also, like, if you're looking for the horror side of Franco, what you might watch. Well, Franco is an interesting character because he's, you know, starts off making fairly conventional mainstream films uh, in the late 50s. Uh, his early movies are all, um, you know, they're, they're mainstream films. They're well made. They're well crafted. They're done in a conventional way. Um, then in the mid-60s, he ends up uh, becoming the uh, assistant to Orson Welles on Chimes at Midnight. Um, he ends up directing Second Unit on that film, including the famous battle scenes. Uh, so anybody who thinks that Franco didn't know how to direct, they're, they're completely incorrect. Orson Welles knew better and hired him to do these impressive scenes in, in his film Chimes at Midnight, which is a, a fantastic film that Welles actually was uh, of the opinion was his best movie. So uh, they worked together on various other projects, too, that never got finished, an adaptation of Treasure Island, for example, and uh, Don Quixote, which Franco did eventually, many years later, kind of uh, supervise the completion of, but it was pathetically underfinanced, and it really, you know, it's not, it's not a shadow of what it could have been, unfortunately. Um, after that, his movies become more kind of improvisational. He's a, he's a jazz musician. This is brought up all the time. Um, and it's very important to understand because like jazz musicians, he's all about sort of riffing on themes and riffing on ideas and so forth. And so his films can very often feel um, a bit uh, incoherent. Um, they can sometimes feel sort of half-baked and half-finished because it's sometimes as if he's losing interest in the main thrust of the plot while he's really taking an interest in these little weird sort of digressions and things. Uh, it's all part of the experience if you're into it and you, and you can appreciate them. Uh, I think his best movie is Venus and Furs, um, which is a, a fantastic uh, kind of ghost story uh, with a heavy erotic content to it as well. Um, I, I, I struggle to say whether that's really a horror film or not. It is, but it's not really a conventional horror film. Um, but it's it's a terrific movie, just the same. If you're looking for a Jess Franco horror film, though, that's indisputably a horror film that's a lot of fun, I'd say um, his movie Faceless from 1988. Uh, which is a kind of uh, semi-remake of his famous film from the 60s, The Awful Dr. Orloff, uh, which is about a plastic surgeon that's uh, able to sort of transplant faces. Uh, and uh, has, a, has an impressive cast. Uh, that includes Kelly Savalas and uh, Helmut Berger and uh, Carolyn Monroe and Anton Differing. Uh, it's quite a good movie. As a matter of fact, Severin just put it out in 4K. Um, so it's, it's readily available if you want to get an idea of what Franco can be like that's that's a good uh, intro for you it's a lot of fun okay how about uh Eloy de la iglesia iglesia is a very interesting filmmaker very uh like a lot of these people very leftist filmmaker um a lot of the italian directors uh, you know are, are are very very left of center um even if their films sometimes don't necessarily indicate that but most of them were uh iglesia certainly fit that um that description as well he was also openly gay 
uh, at a time which was quite um, unusual and, and rather brave in the Spanish society, um, you know, under Franco. Not just Franco, but Francisco Franco, the, uh, the dictator um, who was in power there until 1975 when he died. Uh, he imposed very strict censorship on films, so directors like uh, Iglesias had to um, very often kind of try to pawn their movies off as if they were foreign films, you know, set them in other countries and things like that in order to avoid getting into trouble. Um, I mean, you know, conventional horror films, not really his thing. Thrillers, uh, more so like The Glass Ceiling and No One Heard the Scream. They're, they're both terrific films. But they, he did a film called, um, uh, they, they call it in English anyway, I can't remember the Spanish title, but in English they call it Cannibal Man. Um, which is an unfortunate title because it, it makes you think it's going to be something it's not. But that's a really, really interesting film. It's not a, it's not really a scary movie as such, um, but it's a very disturbing film and, and I think oddly sort of moving as well. So um, he's somebody that you have to have a bit of patience for a slower kind of rhythm and pacing and so forth. But if you if you can get into that and if you can appreciate it, you'll definitely enjoy his work. Yeah, it's weird. I saw. Cannibal Man, based on your recommendation, um, I was so surprised there wasn't any cannibalism in it. <laughs> so that was weird. Not in the conventional sense, anyway. No, it's it's. Uh, I mean, that happens sometimes. They would put these titles on things, and um, it sets you up for something completely different. It's like Pupi Avati made a film called Zetter um, in the early '80s, which is really one of the best Italian horror films of the '70s, and they called it. I think they called it Revenge of the Dead in the U.S., and they gave it this sort of tacky poster with zombies crawling up from the grave. And that's a poster that's, that's um, signing checks that that movie does not cash. It's not that type of movie. Um, so if you go into it expecting that sort of a thing, you're going to be disappointed. But, uh, you know, hopefully more people are more aware of what these films are meant to be as opposed to um, being fooled by the ballyhoo. Well, I, I you know... I had been talking to you about LGBT uh, film Euro filmmakers and stuff, and you and that's when you recommended Iglesia, and uh, so I started watching his stuff. There's a real um, sensitivity at play in his films. I noticed, mm -hmm. which is kind of endearing. Yeah, he he definitely well being an outsider himself, and he had a he had a complicated life and a short life. Unfortunately, he didn't live to be terribly old, um, but he he definitely had an appreciation for marginalized characters and so forth and and you can see that through his films i mean invariably focusing on people who are kind of on the outside of uh, you know the, uh, the the uh the mainstream so to speak right and what about joe damato joe damato he's an interesting character he's another guy who was a cinematographer uh before he was director as a matter of fact he photographed the dalamato film i mentioned before what have you done to solange um and a variety of other films as well. Um, he started directing in the 70s, um, you know, did films in a variety of different genres before settling into hardcore porn. That's what the, the bulk of his filmography is porn. Um, and so uh, he's somebody that's, you know, I'd be interested to see if somebody ever tackles a book on him someday because that's a lot of porn to sit through. <laughs> Not that I have anything against it. But, uh, you know, it's it, especially later on, it was all that sort of shot on video bump and grind stuff. And it's not, you know, terribly aesthetically interesting. But he did have a good eye being a former cinematographer. He was a very good cinematographer, uh, which he would have had to have been because Dalamano was a great cinematographer. So he hired him to do Solange. You know, he would have needed to have been good at his job, which that's a beautiful movie. So he did a good job. Uh, as a director, I suppose his popular movie is a thing called Anthropophagus, also known as Grim Reaper. 
Uh, I'm not a fan of that film, though, to be honest. I, I find it incredibly boring for the most part. Then it gets into a really gory last act, which involves uh, a couple of notorious scenes of intestine munching and, and fetus munching. <laughs> if you need to see that sort of thing, you'll see it in Anthropogus. Um I think, though, uh, he did a couple of really good films that I do like. Uh, one was called Death Smiles on a Murderer with Klaus Kinski. Um, he's billed as the star, but he's in it very little. It's a small part. Uh, but it's a really weird, dreamy film. It doesn't really make any sense whatsoever, but it's it's a very interesting and dreamy little movie. And a much better film, I think, called um, Beyond the Darkness, or Boyo Omega, uh, which has a score by Goblin. Um, so that's definitely worth seeking out. It's actually a remake of a film from the 60s with Franco Nero called Third Third Eye, I believe it was called, the Terza Occhio, uh, which is about a necrophile, a deranged necrophile. Well, I guess they're all deranged, but... Um, yeah, it's um, it's a really interesting film that I would recommend. Uh, Anthropophagus is is the popular one, but I don't know. I wasn't a big fan of that one. And Paul Nashi. Well, Nashi is uh, kind of a legend, and he's somebody who, you know, there's there's nobody else quite like him in terms of the amount of the great sort of iconic horror roles that he played. Because he played Dracula, he played Frankenstein monster, he played uh, uh, the Mummy, the Wolfman, uh, Mister Hyde. You know, you name it. He did just about everything at one point or another. Um, he was actually a, uh, a a bodybuilder. He was a uh, he was you know a big barrel-chested, imposing guy who was nuts about horror films. He saw Frankenstein meets the Wolfman when he was just a little boy um, in fascist era Spain. Uh, somehow or another, that movie got some kind of a release over there. He saw it, became obsessed with horror movies, and wanted to make them. Um, like Dario Argento, had no interest in directing, but eventually he did become a director. He was principally a writer for a long time. He wrote scripts for numerous films, and uh, when the time came to make a, a werewolf film, um, you know, in his kind of naivete, he was thinking, well, let's get Lon Chaney Jr. to do it, not realizing that Lon Chaney Jr. in the late 60s was a very different man than he was in the 1940s. He was an alcoholic. Um, he put on massive amount of weight. He was he was not in good health. So the casting Cheney was out of the question. And everybody was like, well, who are we going to get to play the werewolf? And they said, how about you? So he did it. And, and uh, eventually became a star in uh, genre cinema in Spain. He wasn't taken seriously by the critics at that time. Although, you know, like with Jess Franco later, they, they took it more seriously and gave him some honors. Uh, but for years, his movies were regarded as sort of trash and ripoffs, and not taken very seriously. In the U.S., his movies that came out over here were usually cut. Um, they were badly dubbed into English. Uh, but fortunately, now you can see really nice uh, editions of his films uh, the way they're meant to be seen. So you can really see what a good um, a good filmmaker he was when he became a director. And also what a really good actor he became. His initial acting was admittedly very wooden. But as he went on and he got more experience, he got better and better. And by the late 70s, he was a really fine actor with a tremendous screen presence. Um, best work, I mean, I, I think his best movie is a movie called El Caminate, which Mondo Macabro put out over here as the, the Devil Incarnate, um, where he basically plays the devil come to earth, um, you know, tempting people into behaving badly. Not really a horror movie, though. It's almost more of a sort of picaresque uh, adventure film with a lot of comedy, but it does have um, some very, uh, you know, sort of haunting imagery and so forth, and it's really, really a beautiful film. In terms of his horror films, uh, you know, if you can see good transfers in Spanish with English subtitles, don't watch the English dubs, but I would recommend uh, Horror Rises from the Tomb, 
or um, uh, Werewolf Shadow. You know, those are both solid bets as well. Isn't Nashi a sort of hero of uh, Del Toro's? Yeah, yeah, Del Toro, of course, is. Uh, you know, I wasn't thinking of him before when we were talking about people influenced by these films. Del Toro is, uh, as you know, a, a tremendous horror enthusiast and uh, historian, and, and uh, yeah, Nashi is uh, certainly one of the people that he admires very much, along with uh, Bava and, and various other people we've been talking about. Right. Um. Yeah, I watched uh, Lisa and the Devil based off of uh, mm-hmm. your glowing endorsement. What a trip. <laughs> oh, my God. What a neat movie. Um, it, you said, though, it's sort of your Desert Island movie. Why is that sort of your go-to horror cult film? It's everything I could want. It's it's funny. It's erotic. It's uh, creepy. It's mysterious. Um, it's romantic. It just has a little bit of everything, and it has some great sort of little shock moments, very creepy moments, um, and sort of melancholy mood and atmosphere. It's just, it's it's not necessarily the best of all those films, um, but it's uh, it's the one. If I could only save one, I guess that would be the one. I mean, even though there are movies I prefer, like Deep Red, for example, and Don't Torture a Duckling, which I mentioned, I, I do prefer them. But something about Lisa and the Devil makes that to me. It's like the ultimate Euro cult movie the ultimate euro cult experience because it has everything that i could possibly want out of one of these movies um it wasn't a movie that won me over right away i remember seeing it for the first time being very confused by it and it took me a while but uh, eventually it, it became my favorite problem yeah i'm definitely gonna have to see it again it was one of those things where i wa- my husband and i were watching it and uh and it, 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 it like a lot of european movies that i like from the filmmakers we've talking about though it, it almost seems to me that it's more about how it makes you feel than plotting do you know what i mean like yeah. um and I, and I find that's a sensibility in some of these european filmmakers that we're talking about that that you see as a, as a common thread is it an emphasis on mood and atmosphere over you know three-act structures and some of the more traditional tropes of yeah. american filmmaking yeah scorsese has talked about that he said he he couldn't tell you the plot of an average Bava film, but he always remembers the images. They've made a very indelible impression and have influenced him. Um, there, There is a tendency, again, because of our prejudices that we have uh, in, in this country as far as how films are made and stories are told, um, to, to look at a lot of these films as being sort of sloppy and incoherent and, you know, they're not good because they don't follow the traditional structure. These people that made them were not dumb people. Um, Bava, Fulci, Argento, we're doing something very specific. It's it's not um, haphazard. It's not accidental. It's not unintentional. It's something very specific that they're going for. The proof is also in the fact that every now and again, when, when somebody like Bava would do a movie with a more conventional plot, he could do it very well. He made a thriller, um, a very realistic thriller, a kidnapping film called uh, Rabbit Dogs, which makes uh, total sense and uh, has one of the great out-of-left-field shock endings you're ever going to see and it's it's a really remarkable film done in a very realistic way so he was capable of doing that but he liked doing these films that were just sort of dreamy and very sort of it was all about mood and atmosphere not really about plot Uh, and that people complain about that sometimes they'll say about the whip in the body for example that it's it's long on mood and short on plot i don't think that's a problem it works it's a question of whether it works or not and in his films it works for me Maybe for some people it doesn't. They they might find it to be a little too indulgent. They can't get into it. But um, it's precisely what I love about those films. Do you think that there's, you know, there's sort of, I find, a, 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 
an ongoing criticism of you look at certain places that some of the film and filmmakers were talking about had a tendency to allow too much you know chauvinism to creep into their films argento's had some accusations that fulci got that a lot what do you make of that feedback i think it's an easy knee-jerk thing and i think usually it's much more complex than that but if you look at argento's films very often they're built around very strong women uh, most of his films have very strong female characters, uh, both as heroines and as uh, as villains. Um, you know, um, it, it's it's a sign of the times. I mean, things are different now, and and it's as they should be. I mean, there are, there are good things that are coming out of this, but unfortunately, there is a tendency sometimes to want to um, to uh, broadcast outrage about things that don't really need to be regarded with outrage, because you know, well. He, he, he shows women being killed. Well, he shows men being killed, too. Well, he shows women in, in states of undress. Well, he shows men in states of undress, too. I mean, in opera, William McNamara is a very sort of pretty boy character in that. And Michael Brandon in uh, Four Flies and Grey Velvet and so forth. And Chris Rydell in Trauma. I mean, there's there's lots of examples of the men, too. Um, it's just a convenient thing. And Fulci, it was the same way. I mean, Fulci, Fulci did admittedly have a very complicated relationship with women, which probably came out of the fact that he was raised by his mother and grandmother, who were very strong uh, female uh, presences in his life, and his father was, wasn't really present. Um, and, you know, he had two daughters, uh, one of whom gave him endless amounts of grief, another of whom was, you know, had serious illness. Um, his wife had committed suicide because she had cancer. Um, you know, he, he had kind of a complicated relationship with women, but at the same time, again, uh, if you look at his movies objectively, there are a lot of very strong female roles in those movies. Um, and it's not always the women that are being treated shabbily. It's, it's very often the men too. So, um, I get it. I understand. Uh, but I, I think it's very often this, this kind of charge of misogyny and of, uh, you know, chauvinism and so forth is slightly, um, is slightly out of kilter uh, and, and not really truly indicative of what the films are all about. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I one of the things I asked you about one, one uh, not that long ago over Messenger was uh, about LGBTQ films and representation mm -hmm. in, in European film. And uh, and and one of the things that was interesting, you know, you look, I think it's Deep Red, right, that has these, uh, it's not a transgender character, but it's a, I think it's Deep Red. Isn't there a character that has a, a, a partner that's trans or something in, in Deep Red? Well, in Deep Red, um, the character played by Gabriele Lavia um, turns out to be gay, and he has, a, he has a boyfriend, but the boyfriend's played by a woman okay. with a kind of cheesy mustache. That's what um, I'm thinking of, yeah. Which is interesting because, you know, if you didn't know that, you would just think it's some guy who had a hard time growing facial hair that that happened. Um, but also in Tenebrae, there's a very important character who's seen throughout the film in flashbacks, who's this kind of seductive figure on the beach wearing red shoes. Um, that's actually played by a very well-known transgender actress um, of the period. So uh, a lot of these, um, a lot of these filmmakers were really very progressive in many respects. I mean, it may not always seem that way. You do sometimes get the limp-wristed sort of pansy stereotypes, um, but you also get sometimes very just sort of refreshingly just matter-of-fact depictions of alternate lifestyles and so forth at a time that that was not common. So you can see that in Argento's films, you can see it in Fulci's, you can see it in Lenzi's uh, even. Lenzi was, you know, probably a lot of people wouldn't assume that he had a kind of sensitive nature, but there is a surprisingly um, kind of uh, progressive attitude towards a lot of those things in his films as well. Is it true that, that uh, uh, Fulci was a known homophobe? 
Okay. I read that online. Uh, uh, there's been a lot of things that are said about some of these people, especially Fulci, because Fulci, again, was such a cantankerous guy. I mean, I couldn't swear that, that Fulci didn't at some point say something that would be regarded as outrageous by today's standards. Maybe he did. Um, but no, I don't. He never, you know, he never seemed to have any particular issue uh, with homosexuals. I mean, he used David Warbeck in a couple of films, for example, who was pretty openly gay. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, other actors and, and people that were in his films were as well. Uh, I don't think he was concerned about that at all. I don't think that's something that he would have had a, a kind of contemptuous attitude about. As a matter of fact, his movie, The New York Ripper, probably his most controversial movie and misunderstood movie, um, is short on sympathetic people, but one of the few sympathetic people in the movie is actually revealed to be gay at one point. So, um, I, I don't think that he had that uh, as part of his his uh, makeup, so to speak. That's another movie that uh, Fulci over the years has caught uh, people saying he was a chauvinist for, <laughs> in particular, was that one. Well, it's it's easy to see it, and you can understand it in a way. Um, but honestly, uh, you know, it's it is a it is a kind of um, knee jerk reaction, is it not? Uh, just to assume that because oh well you know the, the maniac is is killing women in these movies this, these directors clearly hate women um, that's where it's helpful if you dig in a little bit deeper and start to realize okay it's not quite as cut and dry as that. Um, Black Sabbath I think was probably the first Bava film I ever saw, and I think in some ways uh, you know for your kind of average horror fan it's. It, We've talked about it being a good entry point to, to Bava. And it's an anthology film, too. Um, and, and to my mind, one of the, the better uh, anthology oh, films. Yeah. Um, wh what do you think it is about Black Sabbath, though, that makes it kind of have such staying power? Because it's a movie that, you know, I, I don't... What year did it come out? Black Sabbath? Yeah. 1963. 63. I mean, I know, like, uh, I, 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 a friend of mine's son, who's... 17 18 now he loves that movie and it's interesting mm -hmm. to me that the, you know that particular film has such staying power why do you think that one uh has that i mean it, you know quality lasts sometimes although that's not always the explanation because there are plenty of good films that don't necessarily appeal to younger people i think it's genuinely scary in in certain sections in particular the uh drop of water segment um which is uh, maybe taken on its own, you know, as a self-contained thing, could have been the best thing he ever did. Um, but also the Vertilax segment with Boris Karloff as the vampire feeding on his family um, has some really chilling moments too. With that help, anthologies are popular um, because they kind of vary the tone a little bit. So if you're if you're a little bored with a particular story, um, don't worry because there's going to be another one along in the next 20 minutes, and maybe you'll like that one better. The downside of that is very often anthology films are uneven, but that's not the case with uh, Black Sabbath. All three of them are, are quite good, although that depends on which version you're seeing. If you're watching the American version, they, they completely ruined the telephone segment, tried to turn it into a kind of uh, half-assed ghost story, and it doesn't work at all in the American version. But the Italian version is much, much better as kind of a proto-giallo story um, with, with some very mature themes, which, you know, it was understandable that American International, when they put it out in the U.S., thought, well, we can't have a story about you know, uh, lesbians and pimps and prostitutes and everything, you know, this is, this is too much for the kids to, to deal with. So they changed it into a ghost story, but, um, you know, uh, it's difficult to figure out why it is that certain films have a kind of lasting, 
appeal and a lasting legacy and other films kind of are comparatively forgotten. But um, I think, you know, I would assume anyway that most people who, who genuinely like that film do find it to be tremendously uh, scary in, in certain parts. And that's that's a big appeal. What are what are some other European anthology films that you're fond of? Uh, there's a movie called Spirits of the Dead um, from 1967, which was directed by Fellini, uh, Roger Vadim, and Louis Mal, and it's uh, three Edgar Allan Poe stories. Um, actually, all three are are very good. Um, uh, the Louis Mal version has Alain Delon and uh, uh, Brigitte Bardot, and the Roger Vadim has um, Peter Fonda and Jane Fonda. Um, but the, uh, the the segment everybody remembers is the one by Fellini with Terrence Stamp as an actor who an uh, English actor goes to Italy to make a western, and he's totally sort of debauched and, and on drugs and, and drunk, and uh, he's wheeled out to do interviews for the press, and he's just completely out of it and everything, and it and it goes into this kind of uh, ghostly thing involving this little girl with a white ball, which is taken very much from Mario Bava's uh, Kill Baby Kill, but. Um, uh, that's that's a really terrific, terrific film uh, that I would highly recommend. Um, and, and European, not not continental European, but I've also always been very fond of the uh, Amicus anthologies, uh, in particular the House of Drip Blood and From Beyond the Grave. From Beyond the Grave is great. I love From Beyond the mm-hmm. Grave. Yeah. Um, yeah. Getting into Argento a bit here, just just for uh, d- just to be definitive, can you give a definitive? definition of what a giallo film is for people listening i don't think anybody can do that i, I, <laughs> I know I, I put I, my own yeah. I, I put my own i put my own spin on it in my books um the so deadly so perverse series essentially it's it, it, I, I will never back down on this point and it's disagreed with by many people and but i think it's very important it should be primarily an italian film above all um it needs to be there are films in the Giallo style that were made in other countries, Spain, uh, Germany, France, um, even into Asia and, and, and so forth. You know, in America, I mean, De Palma has made films that are very much like Giallo films. But then real Jally, um, the, the Italian films, you know. And again, understanding that most of the Italian films are co-financed by other countries. So usually they do have French money or Spanish or German or whatever. Um, but primarily Italian films usually... Um, I would say they're sort of pulpy or lurid. Um, you know, there were there were Italian films made before The Girl Knew Too Much, which came out in 1963, the Mario Bava film, which is generally accepted as kind of the first cinematic gala, the first real one. Uh, there had been movies made before it, like uh, The Facts of a Crime and, and uh, uh, L'Assassino and, and various other movies that were that were of that genre, but they weren't quite that yet. They, they had different things on their minds, so forth. The, uh, the Jallo films definitely have a sort of pulpy, um, lurid bent to them. They're not always body count films. Very often um, they could be completely bloodless as well. But sometimes, you know, they're very focused on psychological shenanigans and uh, sort of sleazy uh, uh, head games that are being played uh, in order to get, you know, people get their hands on money, property, things like that. So there are all kinds of different strains of these films, and there are even you know movies and other genres that that have giallo elements. I mean, you can see in Sergio Leone's uh, For a Few Dollars More and Once Upon a Time in the West, for example, there are there are strong giallo elements, but they're not really jally. But I would say there are a few westerns from the '70s that, that kind of fit 
the criteria as well as police films that kind of crossed over like what have they done to your daughters which is another massimo d'alamano film part police film but it's also part giallo as well um everybody seems to have a, a different definition i mean in general i think they're at least based in reality um I, I do kind of make a slight exception for a movie like uh, Hatchet for the Honeymoon, which is kind of ambiguous about the supernatural. But to, by the time you get to the end, it's, it's clear there's a real ghost component to this. There's, you know, it's not a completely realistic film. And then, of course, you have something like Argento's Phenomena, which is uh, dealing with the paranormal. Although, depending on who you talk to about that, that may be even be credible. I, I don't believe it, but many people do. Um, but... You know, some people will insist that Suspiria is a giallo, for example, or Inferno because they have murder set pieces and black leather gloves and, you know, kind of riddles that go through the movie. But they're supernatural horror films. So to me, a giallo is uh, predominantly Italian, usually pulpy, um, you know, lurid in some way, could be violent, could be just, you know, sort of erotic, sleazy. Um, but, you know, it's difficult to sort of distill it into a one one line kind of description. It's one of those things you kind of know it when you see it. You know, Argento's a guy who I think who's had a very up and down career. I mean, he's had, you know, these iconic movies like Suspiria and Deep Red. and But then, of course, as you also point out, the latter 20 years of his career has mostly been kind of, you know, put down as being sort of like, well, Argento's toast now. That's the end of Argento. Like, But you're a bit of a defender for his latter work, uh, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think it's never a good idea to dismiss directors who are still working. I mean, you know, William Friedkin's a good example of that. He went through a really bad stretch. It was a long time. And then he came out with Bug and Killer Joe, and those were brilliant. So you never know. Um, it is difficult after a certain point to muster a lot of enthusiasm. I mean, uh, I think Toby Hooper, after the second Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, with the exception of some really good TV work here and there, uh, for the most part, his later stuff was, was pretty terrible. Um, it seems like most of these guys do reach a place where the fans kind of turn on them in some sort of weird way. It's almost like they, um, it's almost like they can't wait to, to tear into them and tear them apart. And, uh, uh, I mean, if it's justified, it's justified, but I don't think it's really fair. Um, I think that Argento, you know, I'm the first to admit that his work in the 21st century has not been up to the standards of what he did in the seventies and eighties. Um, but I like his movies from the 90s much more than most people do. And when it comes to the more recent stuff, um, his episode of Masters of Horror, Pelts, I thought was absolutely brilliant. Um, I like Card Player more than most people seem to like it. I, I like it. I think it's a fine film. His newest movie, Oki Ali Neri, uh, Dark Glasses, I think is very good too. So um, that was a welcome reprieve after the last three, um, Mother of Tears, Giallo, and Dracula, which I thought were pretty terrible. Um, but with the exception of those three, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's good. Um, uh, the, the the new one, it's going to be on Shutter, I think, in the fall. Uh, but the Italian Blu-ray, if you're region free, does have English subtitles. So if you want to see it, that's a good way of seeing it. I didn't see. I haven't seen Argento's Dracula primarily because I only ever heard that it was terrible. Um... It, I think it is. Rucker Howard plays Van Helsing, which on paper sounds wonderful, but. Uh, I don't know. I, I initially thought he totally phoned it in, but the last time I watched it, I did think, you know, I think he is putting some thought into it. It's kind of a strange performance, but it's an interesting one. Thomas Kretschmann plays Dracula. He had been in Argento's The Stendhal Syndrome. He played the uh, the killer in that film. Um, and he's not a bad Dracula, but the movie is just, I don't know. 
I've never seen it in 3D. I'm told the 3D is very good. I'm sure it is because Argento technically has always been very adventurous. So um, I would, if I had a chance to see it in 3D, I would not turn it down. Mm, other than that, I really can't say anything good about it. I just think it's a mess. I think it's a terrible film. But I do think you should watch it. I mean, if you want to watch it, don't let me turn you off. But I always tell people you see for yourself. If you do like it, then maybe you'll uh, maybe you'll come and tell and try to convince me that it's good. I don't know. Yeah, I was only ever tempted because I'm a bit of a Rudger Hauer completionist. I love Hauer. That was pretty much the only thing that ever tempted me about it. Phenomena or uh, Creepers, I guess, was another title it's known as in the states. Um, mm-hmm. Which I always remember the American VHS cover of with the hand and the bugs and the yeah um uh, it was a great bit of cover art but i i saw that movie at a young age and i remember thinking you know that would have been the american cut of it which isn't as good i don't think um but i remember being very confused but but just very uh enraptured by the tone of the movie which i thought was dreamy and hazy and gauzy and had this great you know and of course you know as i started to dabble more i'd I, i would see films that did that even better but I always think Phenomena is an interesting film of Argento's because of, you know, as you were saying, the sort of supernatural elements mixed with the mm-hmm. uh, the, the Jolly elements. Um, uh, do you think that's sort of an outlier, though, of Argento's films in that regard because it's sort of a hodgepodge of, of kind of two different things? Mm, in a way, but at the same time, Deep Red has a paranormal aspect, too. You know, it deals with uh, uh, parapsychology pretty explicitly, so it's not entirely without precedent. Um it does kind of play like the Argento greatest hits package of the period and probably was his weakest film at that time. But, um, um, you know, time has been kind to it. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's just it's one of those films that you just kind of have to be willing to go with the flow. It's really you know, it's ridiculous. Um, but that's OK. I mean, it's yeah, I, I I think it's fun. I think it's an enjoyable movie. I mean, it's, it's an unusual film. I mean, if you would have asked me that question probably in the late 80s, I'd say, oh, yeah, it's, it's kind of it's unusual. Nowadays, it's almost like, yeah, no, compared to some of the other stuff he's done, not so much. I think Donald Pleasance is amazing in it. Yeah, Orson Welles was originally um, supposed to play that part, apparently, um, which would have been interesting. Um, Argento never really tended to use conventional horror horror actors in his movies. He tended to try and get other types of actors, and sometimes he aimed really high, you know, tried to get big names, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Um but Donald Pleasance was somebody who brought a kind of genre of popularity with him. Obviously, he'd already done Halloween and Dracula and things like that, Alone in the Dark. Um, and uh, he, he gives it a lot of warmth, I think. I think he's he's uh, very, uh, very likable in that film, which, uh, you know, uh, is a big benefit. Yeah, I mean, Donald Pleasance is uh, uh, an actor that uh, we talk about a lot on this podcast because he's my favorite actor. But um you know, I think Donald Pleasance often would show up in, in films that um, weren't very good. And he always seems to have brought... It's like if he took a job, he was going to bring his A game, game for the most yeah. part. Um, yeah. You know, what are some I mean, of your favorite like, Donald Pleasance projects? Horror. Right? Uh, well, I think his best performance was for Polanski in a movie called Cul-de-Sac, um, which if, not, if you've not seen, I highly recommend that. It is available on Blu-ray criterion's masterpiece and he's brilliant in it um another great performance he gave is in a, a harold a harold pinter adaptation called the caretaker um which is a, a play he had done um you know in, in uh 
England and also on Broadway. And they did a film of it in the early 60s with Pleasance and uh, Robert Shaw and Alan Bates. And that's a that's a magnificent performance. His horror work, maybe his best performances in, in the horror genre would be, um, did a film for Gary Sherman called Deathline, also known as Raw Meat, where he plays this uh, very intolerant and testy police inspector. And he's absolutely wonderful in it. Um, I really liked him a lot in From Beyond the Grave, playing the, uh, the little sort of pathetic guy selling uh, shoelaces and, and matches, um, you know, ex-service man who's fallen on hard times. He's really very, very good in that. And of course, I love him in Halloween. Um, but, I mean, you know, th I, I would see Pleasance every now and again hamming it up in a movie where you can tell he realized it was just junk and he was just going to have fun with it. But uh, uh, very often, you know, he... He, as you say, he was uh, totally committed to what he was doing. Really, really wonderful. I mean, uh, he's kind of one of those actors like Christopher Lee or um, Kinski or Herbert Lom, you know, who tended to play not always huge parts. He would play smaller parts, but that, you know, enabled him to make a lot of movies. So that's why Pleasance isn't a ton of movies. John Carradine is another guy like that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he would, they would get prominent billing, but he wouldn't really be in it all that much. But it's funny you watch Pleasance in Madame's Dracula, you know, where where and it's yeah. not his fault because Olivier was very sick, I know, but but Pleasance is yeah. just stealing every scene from Olivier in that. Um, There's a great moment in the film which um, John Badham talks about, and I don't know if it's in the commentary or the interview on the disc, but he talks about there's a scene towards the end of the film where. Um, Olivier's Van Helsing is, is about to get onto this boat to chase after Dracula. And Donald Pleasance is seeing him off at, at the harbor. And if you look at it, at the way it's framed, you can't really quite see what's going on. But like Pleasance is reaching at him and, and Olivier pushes his hands down and says, be, be well or, or keep well, keep well is what's on the film. And Badham said what happened was that Pleasance throughout the movie was munching on these candies all the time. Uh, to get people to you know look at him and also make it difficult to cut away because when you're trying to cut it's difficult when somebody's putting food in their mouth so he would very often get shots to stay longer on him for that reason which is a terrible thing to do but it's it's funny at the same time and Olivier as you said was not well when he made that film he was very very sickly but apparently Pleasance had his bag of candies and was was going to offer Olivier a candy on his on before he's going on his journey and Olivier got pissed off and just pushed his hands down and said, keep them. <laughs> they didn't realize it until afterwards that that's what he had said. So they changed it to keep well in the, in the dub. Um, so he's actually yelling at him and you don't realize it. He was fed up with Donald stealing all his, all his boom, all his thunder. Yeah. Poor. I'm sure he was. Poor Olivier. Um, you know, I think Argento is, as far as the, 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 some of the filmmakers we're talking about, is probably the most well-known of these filmmakers on the American side. Why do you think he's found sort of more widespread success in America than a lot of these other European filmmakers we've talked about? I think Argento, first of all, was a, um, a younger man. Um, he started directing films at the age of 29. Um, that gave him the benefit of time, but it also gave him the benefit of being more hooked into the youth culture. And if you look at his movies, there are a lot of little things in his films that you may not notice, but it's very often in the art direction or it's elements of the characters that come through that you, you you don't realize, you know, if you don't pay attention to them and you realize that they're there for a specific reason, they're kind of alluding to a, a younger, more hip, more kind of uh, up-to-date sensibility than, than somebody like a Fulci would have had as a, as a middle-aged man by that time. So in Bird with Crystal Plumage, for example, um, 
Sam Dalmas and his apartment has a black power poster up. Um, there, there are things like that through the films and, uh, you know, going into the 80s, using Iron Maiden on the soundtrack and Motorhead, things like that. Um, he really seemed to understand what the youth culture was, was all about, at least up to a point. He, he kind of lost that later on, as you do. You just get older and, you know, I find myself at, at 45 sometimes I, I do that thing I've seen people do so many times. Well, who's that? I've never heard of that person. <laughs> and they're apparently very well known. Yeah. Um, I think that's just a natural thing that happens. But I think in addition to that, in addition to having that kind of youthful sensibility, he also um, was really, really good at self-promotion. And that's something that Bava wasn't good at. Bava was very, very uh, uncomfortable being in the limelight. He didn't want to be famous. He didn't want to be well-known. He didn't want to be, you know, front and center. Uh, Argento likes the attention. So he was really good at selling himself and promoting himself, uh, hosting a TV series in the 1970s called Door to Darkness, where he essentially, you know, solidified his reputation as kind of the Italian alternative to Hitchcock, because Hitchcock had done the same thing in the 50s with his TV show. Um, so a, a combination of those factors and just a really good flair for self-promotion. Um, added to which, making his very first film at 29, it turns out to be a big hit. When you make a successful film that makes a lot of money, that means you're going to get more money to make your next movie. And, and when your movies are making money, you're getting more and more money. So he actually got himself into a, uh, a kind of a rhythm where he had that kind of auteur type of career where he could create and generate his own material. Um, the the fact that later on he would do things like Giallo, for example, where he didn't write the script. It was something that was just sort of presented to him as kind of an indication of where he was at that time, that he needed to find a project that would hopefully connect with people. So he decided to do a gun for hire project or something like Dracula, which he never would have made a film like Dracula in the 70s. He had no interest in making a film like that. But that was very much of the moment. You know, vampires were kind of popular at the time. 3D was popular. So let's let's get Dario Argento to do a 3D version of Dracula. It's, it can't miss. Well, it did. Um, and you know these things do happen. But he did build up kind of a almost an empire in Italy for a period of time. He had his own production company. They were making good money. But then the bottom fell out, and unfortunately, he ended up you know going into bankruptcy and, and had all kinds of financial difficulties and had some really tough times uh, where he tried to kind of get back on top. And he never really did. Talking about someone like Fulci is, you know, who's probably my favorite European horror director, um, just because I love the kind of what I would describe as the batshit crazy nature of his movies as being, you know, I I love with Fulci movies, and I always have that kind of everything in the kitchen sink approach that he takes, where there's just like so much happening, whether or not it makes sense or is plot driven really doesn't matter. You know, and and as you've said, some people might hate that about Fulci, some of Fulci's films. I particularly like that. There's there's no appealing to everybody. Yeah, well, exactly. Do you think Fulci was kind of aware that his films had an emphasis on atmosphere over plot? Like, was that something that he was conscious of, or do you think it was just his style? No, no. It, he, you know, again, coming from a background as a writer, having been a screenwriter and so forth, if you look at his earlier films... Um, in particular, thrillers from the 70s, those, those films are rather meticulously plotted. He sometimes said too meticulously plotted. He said sometimes they got too mechanical. Um, it wasn't until Zombie that, uh, you know, once Zombie came out and was successful and there was a realization that, okay, you know, we want you to do more films like this, 
that he started thinking, I'd like to do something that's surreal. I'd like to do something that just throws the plot out the window where it doesn't really matter. Motivation, etc. I'm not interested in that. I just want to go with atmosphere. So it was a very conscious decision. Um, he would still occasionally do films that were more plot driven. I mean, the New York Ripper, whether we think the, the, the plot holds up or not, it does have a plot. Um, whereas something like The Beyond is deliberately plotless. And uh, again, that's one of those things where people sometimes they see it and they think, well, that's just sloppiness, or he doesn't know how to tell a story, or he has no idea about logic. And actually, he does. He's doing this all very intentionally. It's very deliberate. It, it has a surrealist bent to it. It's the kind of thing if Bunuel were doing it, they would be preaching, you know, praising it to the skies. But because it's a Italian horror movie, they think, oh, it's just inept. It's just shoddy, and, and, and they don't take it seriously. So, you know, Fulci, Bava, Argento, in their own way, even though they were making genre films and they were making uh movies that could be said to have a kind of grindhouse quality to them in some respects were also they kind of had a foot in, in the art house as well do you think it's kind of unfair that fulci has been given the the kind of moniker of the godfather of gore like do you think it's sort of minimalizing to give him that title well first of all the godfather they do call him that and they shouldn't because that was herschel gordon lewis um that's that's the guy who first had the name attached to him I think they started calling Fulci that because it's Italian, yeah. you know, the Godfather. So let's yeah. call him the Godfather of Gore. Uh, they also call him Maestro of Splatter and various other things. Um, I think it is unfair, although I understand it. I mean, it, it's one of those things, you know, there are Fulci fans who will watch every single horror film he's ever made, but they couldn't care less about the earlier films. And, you know, you wouldn't catch them dead watching one of his musical films or his comedies or his westerns. Um, uh, you know, they're lost if they don't want to check them out. I think they should. You know, if you really want to understand the director, you should try to see everything that you possibly can. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a shame um, that it it kind of cheapened him in a way. And I think he was aware of that. And I think he had some frustration with it on a certain level. He was glad for the attention, but there was all this kind of emphasis on the uh, the violence, the gore, the splatter, etc., and and frequently people forgot what a really good filmmaker he truly was. If you go back and look at a film like Duckling or Lizard and Woman's Skin, one on top of the other, uh, for the apocalypse, you might be astonished to see what a really really fine filmmaker he was. You know, uh, Beatrice Kenshi was another one, great film. Um, and they have their visceral moments, and they they have moments that were fairly shocking for the time, but it's not that type of splatter fest. And, um, you know, if it gets people talking about his films and keeps his name alive, then that's good. You know, that's that's fine. But it, it seems to trivialize him and minimize him to a certain extent, I think. Yeah, because to me, I think, you know, where it kind of is a mislead is uh, it suggests that all they're kind of... I think it, it suggests notion that all there is to his movies is kind of these gore set pieces. And what I think is kind of shitty about that is, like, when I think of my first time seeing one of his films, which was The Beyond, when it, Seven Doors to Death was the title it was under. And it was just one of those things I grabbed off the, the shelf in a video store when I was fairly young. And I, th it ter I thought it was terrifying. And I was not an easily scared person even then. Uh, and to this day, I still think it's a scary movie. I think, you know, just focusing on the gore kind of takes away for how much of a, a real sense of tension and, 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 and scares, you know, that Fulci really brought to the table when he did genre pictures. I agree with all that. There's also a tendency sometimes to think that the gore stuff is easy to do and that, you know, a lot of people are very snobby about gory films in general and they're, oh, that's, that's the cheap way out. Anybody can do that. Not everybody can do that. 
um, it takes it takes a certain skill to pull that off and to do it well, and that's something that deserves to be noted too. But I absolutely agree. I mean, it, it does kind of you know neglect the fact that it's not. I don't. I can't speak for everybody. I I know it's not. It's not the gore that keeps me coming back to these movies over and over again. I certainly I, I have no problem with that part of it. But it's more the atmosphere than anything else, which, again, is something that that is a sign of a very disciplined and very skillful filmmaker. And, you know, you may know this because you, you wrote a book about him, literally. Uh, the shark sequence in Zombie, like, how the hell did he do that? Uh, that was a second unit uh, stuff, so he wasn't really there for it. But uh, what they did was um, they they got a, a, a shark. Um, I think it was actually an older shark who might even been toothless i'm not sure but they doped him up um so that you know the um the 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 guy in the zombie makeup would be able to interact safely um and uh yeah it was it was essentially all there was to it the real i think the real amazing thing in that sequence just the fact the makeup held up as well as it did underwater no kidding yeah it's amazing when you go back and look at it and you know now that you know and i have a question for you about this but but you know now that you get some of these movies they certainly weren't shot, you know, with the idea of them being shown in 4K on massive <laughs> television screens, also in 4K, you know. Some of the things that don't hold up under that kind of clarity and scrutiny, but that shark bit still looks great even now, remastered. It's still kind of an amazing sequence. Um, you know, I think Fulci was a real yeah. ballsy director and some of the things he just even attempted with the budgets he had. He was, and that was the thing. I mean, he, he didn't, he would go there, you know, he would take things to an extreme that nobody, the the splinter and the eye scene made the impact it did because of the way that he shot it. I mean, you're used to things like that being built up and built up and built up and they cut away and then he does cut away, but then he cut back. And uh, what you see is something pretty amazing. Now, of course, you can sit there and if you're one of these people who wants to sort of nitpick and, and, and critique, you could say, well, her eye isn't even blinking. Well, no shit. I mean, it's obviously it's a dummy, but it's a really well done effect. <laughs> yeah. And it does hold up extremely well. Um, and, you know, the, the fact that we can still into the 21st century watch these things and, and be sort of amazed with what they put together with spit and polish is a good indicator of how talented these people were. Not just Fulci, but also the people who worked on the films who were very talented craftspeople. Yeah. Did you see the uh, more contemporary... Uh, film, uh, I, I guess it is it shallow knife plus heart is the movie I'm thinking of. Did you see that film? No, I haven't seen that one yet. Um, that's sort of uh, one of those Jallo homage films that have come out from other countries like um, Amer and things like that. But I, I've not seen that one yet. Can you make a contemporary Jallo film, or is it sort of something that requires to be made at a certain time? You think to fit the criteria? They're still being made. I mean, in Italy, they, I mean, Argento's newest film, Occhioli Neri, is, is a giallo. Okay. It just came out in February of this year in Italy. So, um, yeah, it still exists. It's still done. It's never gone away in the way that, like, the Italian Western did, for example. Um, it, it has continued, maybe not as much, and it's not as prolific as it was. Um, but, yeah, it is carried on into the 21st century, and I see no reason why it couldn't carry on even longer. Um. I, I'm not sure pronouncing his last name. Is it Michelle Soavi? S O A V I. How do you pronounce his last name? Uh, Michele Soavi. Okay, thank you. Uh, I can't pronounce his name, but I think he's great. I love some of his films, uh, particularly, of course, Delamorte Delamore, which I think is a masterpiece. And I wish yeah. someone would give it a, 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 a North American release. But anywho, um, uh, so I think he's a tremendously underrated uh, European genre filmmaker. Uh, who's someone like that for you? 
somebody underrated? Yeah, that you're like, or not even necessarily just underrated, but that you're a particularly big fan of that, you know, for someone listening that you're like, you probably never heard of this person, but check him out. I mentioned Alamato already. I think he's somebody that's uh, of great interest. Uh, Pupiavati, uh, who made House of the Laughing Windows and Zetter, uh, who's actually had a pretty successful mainstream career in Italy and is regarded semi-seriously over there as a director. But he's dabbled in horror and, and giallo topics, you know, off and on throughout his career. Um, he's he's somebody of, of great interest as well. Paolo Cavara, uh, who's another guy who really didn't make all that much. Unfortunately, he died rather young as well. But he directed uh, uh, a couple of really good jelly in the 70s. He did a film <clears throat> called Black Belly of the Tarantula with uh, Giancarlo Giannini, which I'm very fond of. And also a movie called Plot of Fear, which is... Uh, a really, really weird, off-the-wall kind of a giallo that features in smaller roles, uh, even Tom Skerritt and Eli Wallach, for example. Um, that's, you know, he's he's somebody who's really interesting as well. Uh, Suave, who you mentioned for a period of time, he looked like he was going to be the new kind of big leading light in Italian horror films, but unfortunately, for personal reasons, he had to stop making films for a period of time, and by the time he came back, the momentum was gone. But um, he's, he's still done some really good things since then, though. He made a uh, kind of noir film called The Goodbye Kiss, which uh, is really terrific. Now, one of the other people that's not a European filmmaker, but of course that we talked about was John Carpenter. Um, and, and John is a, uh, you know, a filmmaker that I think is, whose influence is everywhere right now and whose appearance is everywhere right now. He's on you know magazine covers again. Uh, he's had this late, career where where every filmmaker under the sun has talked about you know him being an influence on them or um but it's funny because to me you know i can remember a time where that wasn't the case and john was sort of pushed aside in some way and john was uh, carpenter's career was sort of being i think sort of maligned almost by some people um there's kind of a comeback story to me that in, in john john carpenter's you know where his esteem is now because it wasn't always that way can you speak to that do you think that's true yeah, like Argento and, and numerous other people, Romero as well, there, there's usually that place where the fans just seem to turn on them for reasons that aren't always clear to me. With with Argento and Carpenter, actually, they both, you know, most people would argue that they kind of lost it in 1988. Um, Argento with opera and uh, Carpenter with They Live. And, and people act like everything they did since then is not good. It's not true in either case. I think both of them have done great work since then. Um it's only a couple of films of Carpenter's that I don't care for. And, and even those movies have good things in them. So uh, he's another one who, you know, I think he's far more consistent than he's usually given credit for. Um, you know, uh, his his influence is certainly huge, although if you told him that, he would laugh. He, he's, uh, he's very self-deprecating. There's nothing pretentious about the man. I, I was able to interview him for my book and uh, found him to be really delightful to talk to. He... You know, he's got this wonderful kind of laconic, um, sardonic uh, kind of quality to him. He's a straight shooter. He's nothing pretentious about him. And I guess that sometimes makes people think that he's arrogant or he's, you know, he's unpleasant or whatever. He's not at all, actually. I thought he was extremely funny. Um, but, uh, you know, he's burnt out from making movies. And you can see it in the progression of him physically down through the years. After a certain point, he started looking much older than his years. And he said he realized when he was doing Ghosts of Mars and he saw the footage, uh, the behind the scenes footage of him doing the music, that he was like, I need to stop or I'm going to die because <laughs> uh, I'm not looking good. So he stopped and um, he did come back, you know, a little bit here and there, Masters of Horror in a movie called The Ward, which was just, you know, a small movie. Um, 
but he's really been enjoying a lot of success lately with his music again, which is what he really likes to do these days. Um, he keeps teasing he's going to come back. He's going to make another movie. I don't think it's going to happen. I think if he really wanted to, he would have done it by now, um, even if he went like the uh, you know, GoFundMe kind of route or whatever, the crowdfunding type thing. He, he could get financing, you know, I'm sure, quite easily that way. I don't think he really wants to. You know, He says he'd much rather sit home and, and play video games and you know, make music with his son and his godson. So good for him. I mean, I got to see him live uh, in... 2016 i guess it was and it was a wonderful experience and uh uh i love his music i love his films and uh i think the man himself is just a really just sort of all-around cool awesome uh unpretentious kind of a guy just a straight shooter who doesn't think of himself as any kind of artist um when you talk to him you know he, he'll talk a blue streak on anything but his movies when it comes to his movies he really doesn't like talking about them very much yeah, it's funny because I people have asked me uh, because you know I because I know John and and uh, and and you know can call him on the phone. They're like, well, why is he come on your podcast yet? I'm like, I'm not. I haven't asked him yet because I'm not. The format of the show is that you know we kind of do a deep dive with people when they come on. We start at the beginning, work through some of their highlights. I know John doesn't want to do that. He's probably he'd probably say no. He's done it with his commentary track. So he's done commentaries for just about all of his films. There's only a couple he hasn't done. Um, and, uh, I, you know, he said what he has to say, I, I think, you know, and, uh, um, you're probably right. He, he, but I mean, get him talking about other things, get him talking about basketball or video games yeah, or other yeah. people's movies, even, uh, and he'll talk, movies, yeah. he'll talk and talk. When I would talk to him on the phone mm-hmm. and he was kind of consulting on a project I was writing with, with Romero and, and he would call to give us notes and George and him would talk about other things other people's movies primarily for most of the conversation and then kind of push through the work that needed to be done because to them it was like they had more fun talking about that it was more interesting to them george was always more giving talking about his work with me than john was but but uh um romero always had that kind of you know big big bear of a uh you know just lovable kind of a guy thing going and and could relate to people and that's why people really liked him when they met him because he was just very warm. Carpenter's much more stoic. He's, I think he's a rather shy man, honestly. I think he's kind of, you know, uncomfortable uh, being the center of attention. And, uh, you know, again, putting him on the spot. And he won't talk about things that uh, he didn't enjoy. You know, at this point, he's kind of reached a place in his life where he doesn't want to bitch about things. Um, so... You know, trying to get him to talk about something like Memoirs of an Invisible Man, for example. He'll give you the basic generic stuff, but other than that, he's not really going to talk about what he really thought of Chevy Chase and things like that because it's just not not worth it, so he doesn't do it. To anyone out there is sort of an aspiring writer or or film journalist that wants to, you know, has a favorite person of theirs that they want to write about, their favorite director, their favorite actor, whatever. Do you have any kind of sort of pointers or tips on how to get started putting down a book on your favorite so-and-so? Just do it. Um, it's the easiest piece of advice to give. It's probably the least helpful, but it's actually true. I mean, I see people all the time uh, on Facebook who are procrastinating constantly and they have a million and one excuses. I've got this, you know, I've got that, I've got ADHD. I'm not minimizing that. I'm just saying everybody comes up with every stumbling block imaginable that, the, you know, that they're not doing. It's like you reach a point where you're either going to do it or you're not. And uh, the hardest thing is always to start, you know, the blank, page now it's the blank screen um once you start getting the words down that's 
you know, you've, you've made your start. I don't care if you want to just sit down and write your acknowledgements, you know, do something. And then it'll start to progress. Now, everybody's different. Like I said, some people, it takes them years to write something. Me, I can get a book written in the space of just a few months. Um, the people who don't like my books will say, well, there's a reason for that. They're not very good. Uh, but, you know, I, I certainly do uh, my my homework and I do my best to you know, always make them as, uh, as in-depth and as accurate as possible. Yes, there are mistakes I wish I could go back and fix in some of these books. And maybe someday if I get a chance to do reprints, I'll, I'll do that. Um, and they're never going to be exactly what you want them to be. But the key thing is just to write them. And don't get yourself bogged down in self-doubt by thinking, is this working or is it not? Just keep going. Keep writing. Then when you're done, you can go back and you can look at it and say, well, this is no good. I'm going to take this out or I'm going to rewrite this or whatever. The key thing is just to do it. And the, the other important thing is to write every day. Every single day, make time. You know, I mean, it's easier for some than others. I'm not married anymore. Uh, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not a, a social butterfly, so I, it's easy enough for me to sit and, and do this. Maybe some people will be harder, but it is important, I think, to keep the momentum going. So every day, even if it's just a half an hour to an hour, devote a little bit of time to it, just keep writing. And, um, if you want to do it, that's the way to do it. You know, if, if it's uh, about somebody who's still alive. Uh, obviously, you know, you're faced with the possibility you could try to reach out to them and, and try to interview them and get some questions going with them. Um, you know, if you're writing about people who are dead, you know, you're, you're limited as to what you can get. You might be able to get collaborators and things like that. But, uh, you know, don't don't sweat all the small details and don't talk yourself out of doing things because you think you're not good enough or so-and-so already wrote another book, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. Just just do it, you know. and um, it's, it's easier now. It's in some respects, it's too easy, quite frankly. It's part of the problem is you can publish yourself. You can self-publish, go through, um, uh, various different platforms and put your own books out yourself, which isn't probably the best idea because you do need to have, you know, an editor and, and people like that to sometimes tell you if something's gone wrong or it needs fixed. Um, but just, just do it. Who are some 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 filmmakers you know looking down the road that you think you might like to write books on? Kind of running out of people I want to write books on. I've thought about different people. Um, at one point, I was really keen on doing doing a book on Polanski because I love his films. Um, say what you will about the man, I'm not here to debate that. But as a filmmaker, he's uh, one of the great geniuses I think of of all time, and. Um, I was very keen to do that. And then this beautiful, big, thick, hardcover volume from Europe came out that kind of did exactly what I had hoped to do. Um, so I'm being a hypocrite there by saying I was put off by that. But maybe someday I'll rethink it and, and, and do that. I could see myself doing something like that. I've thought about maybe um, Bava's son, Lamberto. That could be an interesting subject to tackle at some point. I'm not aware of anybody else doing that. So that might be something to think about. Um, but there aren't there aren't really a ton of other people who really come to mind right now. I mean, you know, there there are definitely people who I think could be interesting at some point. Um, but uh, I, right now, I'm in the middle of doing this this project with another writer from Italy, where we're looking at four different directors who had sort of small bodies of work as as directors, and my focus is on that right now. So maybe once that's finished, I'll go back and you know 
Mm. He sometimes just thinks I'd love to go back and redo the Fulci book and sort of fix up certain things that I think could be improved and maybe revisit uh, the Jallo books and, and approach them in a slightly different way than what I did years ago. Um, but I don't know if it's a good idea and I don't know if that's really even fair because at a certain point you keep revisiting things, you know, people get pissed off that they have to keep buying new editions. So, um, I don't know. Yeah. There are other, there are numerous other people who come to mind, but, um, nobody as of right now, and Jess Franco for a while was somebody I thought about, but I never wanted to do like a what Stephen Thrower did, which is this you know, big, massive two volume book that looks at all the films. I just thought maybe a kind of a, a a more personal guide to the more interesting films I thought could have been interesting to do, but now I feel like, eh, I don't know if that's really much need for that. Um, I'm sure others will come to mind, but for right now, those are at least a few people I've thought about. Has anyone written a book about Donald Pleasance? Uh, a guy named Christopher Gullo did a book, um, which is more of a kind of films of book, although it does have some biographical material in it. Um, so that one is out. Um, you know, Pleasance is is certainly uh, an interesting character. I want someone to write a book. I wanted to write. I started writing a book about Donald Pleasance years ago, and I interviewed all kinds of great people for it. I interviewed like Ian McKellen did an interview for the book, and all kinds of, you know, the who's who. Write it. Yeah, and then I just kind of was like, maybe he's too inside. And I talked myself out of all the things that you talked about. You're not going to make the New York Times bestseller with things like this, but that's fine as long as you don't have, you know, unrealistic dreams about uh, getting a major publisher or something. You can get one of the more sort of smaller genre type press people. They would put out a book on Pleasance. I'm sure he's still uh, a well-remembered cult figure and obviously a great actor. So, And there have been actors I've thought about, too, you know, different people that I thought could be interesting. At one point, I was thinking about Cameron Mitchell. Until I just, you know, the, the sheer volume of what he did was just like, I don't know if I really want to bite that off. I, that's a little too imposing for me. Um, but uh, you should do your Pleasance book. I know, I want to. I mean, I interviewed some great people for and I still have. Roger Ebert gave an interview about Pleasance. I still have it documented. Um, and it was amazing to me. It spoke to Donald Pleasance's wonderful credit. So many high-profile people were excited to talk to me about him. I think that there is a lot. Sure. John said two things and then he got emotional and said, I can't really talk about this. Um, and I think, you know, that was, that speaks to the kind of person John is. <laughs> he, he and his wife, Sandy, are both uh, still immensely fond of him. I, I talked to her about him briefly and you could just tell from the way she was talking about him that uh, he was a much loved presence in their lives while he was around. Yeah. Um, I've also, of course, you know, a huge part of, of the work you're doing in, 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 you know, is restoration and these amazing, you know, remasters that are coming out now of films and companies like, uh, I get, is there primarily, you're doing a few, you've done Arrow, are you, Blue Underground, have you done stuff for them as well? A number of films for Blue Underground, a number for Severin, a number for um, uh, Kino, um, a few for Synapse, um, one, only one so far for Vinegar Syndrome, a couple for Indicator, um, a bunch, yeah, a bunch. How do you sort of approach, you know, when you're doing things like a commentary track? You know, the, the great commentary track to me is kind of an elusive art unto itself. Some commentaries are just fun and they clip along and you enjoy them, and some, you know, even if they have good information, they can sort of start to feel like they're droning on. Or what do you think is sort of the ingredients to a, a good commentary track? Enthusiasm. 
enthusiasm is a big thing because I've heard commentary, and I, w I will not mention anybody's name because I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody, but like anybody, I have people uh, that I like listening to and people I don't like listening to, and, and there are some people who have great information. They do their homework, and they're they're sharing really really good information, but they're doing it in a way that's boring um, because they sound like they're reading from a monitor, which is what they're doing. Um, you can overscript these things, you know, to to a point where you're, you're scripting every pause and you're scripting every little quip. Um, but uh, by the same token, you can also wing it too much too, so that it's just you know kind of rambling on and on. And I've heard those too, where I think, well, I you know this this guy isn't really or, or girl or guy or whatever. I'm not I, I'm not getting anything out of this. So it really depends. Um, everybody has a different sense of what's um what's good to listen to you know i mean um i had somebody uh, a, a well-regarded person to refer to one of the commentary tracks i did with nathaniel thompson as podcasty which is not meant as a compliment um uh okay i that's fine i mean if you if your approach is to um be very rigid and very screen specific the whole way through. And, you know, and, that, and that's your approach. You're probably not going to like what we do as a team, which is generally more of a banter and, and kind of a free association, but, you know, hopefully keeping reasonably on topic. Um, you want to try to bring as much as you can, as far as facts to it without becoming dull. Um, I think it's important to try to, you know, if you can get information on shooting dates and, uh, uh, background information on the shoot and background information on the people involved. It's important to do that. Um, but it can sometimes be a little tedious if that's all the more you're doing. I, I remember listening to a commentary once. I swear it was nothing but one actor bio after another, after another, after another, you know, back to back to back to back to back. And that's fine if you spread them out. But if you're just doing them one after the other like that, I was like, I'm done. I mean, I'm checking out. So. It's a tough mix too, right? Because it's like, and I and I think you succeed at it, which is which is, uh, for what it's worth, I do. I listen to your commentary tracks, and I'm pretty picky at this point with the ones I do listen to, um, because there there's you know too much sort of you know lecturing, and it feels like you're in a classroom, and it can get kind of dull. Too much banter and giggling, laughing, and I'm like, okay, this is like being part of an inside joke you're not in on. There's, you know, we've talked about companies like uh, Severin and Vinegar Syndrome, and some of these guys that are they're putting out, uh, you know, some pretty like niche or hard to find or you know relatively obscure titles. Um, you know, there's to me there's this amazing kind of thing about about what these companies are doing though, finding some of these films that you know probably would have been lost if companies like this weren't doing that. But I know, like, uh, I had Chris Alexander on the show, and he said that sort of the downside, though, sometimes he said, you know, some of these movies are not meant to be seen in 4K. I don't know that I agree with that. Uh, there could be some truth to that with certain things, but there's there's kind of, there's a mentality that, particularly with, uh, like, Fulci, for example, people tend to think, well, this stuff was made for, like, sort of grubby grindhouses and so forth. That may have been the experience in the U.S., but that wasn't really the way the films were presented in Italy, for example. Um, you're not seeing anything in a 4K that you can't see in a really good, well-presented 35mm presentation. So when these films were put out in Italy originally and, and they were you know fresh and they weren't you know beaten to hell from having been shown over and over again and so forth, um, you were seeing 
something comparable to what we're seeing now. Um, it is probably true. I know recently they've announced that they're putting out children shouldn't play with dead things on 4K. And given the way that that film was shot and what it looks like and everything, I'm not entirely sure that a 4K of that is really going to be, you know, necessary. Yeah. Um, especially given the label that's doing it, unfortunately. They, they don't have a good track record. So I, I'm not so optimistic what it will look like. Um, although I'll be happy to be proved wrong if they do a great job by it. Um, but you'd be amazed how good some of these things can be made to look. It just depends on how they're handled. And, um, you know, it, it depends on what the aesthetics were to begin with. If you're dealing with somebody who had a you know good visual eye, uh, certainly these Italian directors we've been talking about had that, Carpenter had that, um, they're going to stand up to the 4K resolution very, very well. Whereas maybe, you know, something shot in 16 millimeter that, that's not really particularly attractive. I don't know if there's a big appeal there, but um, I, the only reason I disagree with what you're saying in a sense is that I've, I've encountered this with some people that they say, oh, you know, movies like uh, Night of the Living Dead and Texas Chainsaw Massacre only work when you watch them on VHS. You know, they clean them up too much and they, they it's, it strips all the, no, I don't know. Romero and Hooper and, the, and their collaborators went to great pains to make those movies look as good as possible. And so to have them cleaned up and really in pristine condition is not a bad thing at all. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what they originally wanted the film to look like. I mean, there may be a certain amount of uh, revisionism going on with some of the color timing and things. You know, they're changing it later on because their, their tastes have changed. Um, but, you know, the idea that it only would look good, you know, on a, on a on a tape is is kind of ludicrous to me. You don't think though that sometimes you know when these things are 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 transferred and cleaned up and all this time that some of the seams come through in a way that they weren't intended to. They may not have been visible on a VHS or or even a DVD because the resolution wasn't so sharp. But again, it goes back to what what would you have seen theatrically when the films were new um, on a on a giant screen in a pristine thirty five millimeter print? I guarantee you that they were pretty obvious then too. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, and it's interesting because I've talked to, to Dean Cundy quite a bit about, uh, you know, like the work he's done with John. He loves these these remasters. He's like, no, it gives us a chance mm -hmm. to kind of go in and we get to, you know, he said over time, particularly Halloween, I know this happened a lot. He said it would it had been time drawn. The color timing was off. He said we got to finally go back yeah. in and adjust that and get it back to what we kind of closer to what we intended because over time it had yeah. been changed a lot. Um uh, you know, what are some films that you think uh, have been cleaned up, uh, remastered in the last little while where, where you think it's, you know, important for people to see them in terms of, you know, they've really been able to kind of give these films a new lease on life? I'm pretty new to the 4K thing. Uh, I only just went over to that format last, I think it was last year. Blu-ray is well, which either 4K or 1080p. Well, I'll limit it to 4K right now, just in the sense of, you know, I've been pretty astonished recently just with the um, the 4K remasters on the Sergio Leone, uh, Clint Eastwood uh, Westerns, uh, Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more, and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, uh, all of which have been very problematic on video before. Um, the previous Blu-ray that Kino put out on Fistful of Dollars was atrocious. It looked horrible. I threw it in the garbage. As a matter of fact, when I was done, I threw it away. And, uh, I'll just keep the Italian Blu-ray. It looks better. Um, it now looks terrific. I mean, they've really, really done justice to the look of those films in a way that's uh, really extraordinary. Um, 
and I was very fortunate to be involved in the uh, restoration. Not that I had anything to do with the restoration, but to be on the disc of the 4K of uh, Deep Red from uh, Arrow, which is another one that's just uh, eye-poppingly beautiful. Suspiria from Synapse is another one, just extraordinary. Uh, the stuff that Blue Underground's been doing, and I'm, I'm on a number of those discs as well, like uh, uh, Zombie and House by the Cemetery and New York, New York Ripper, those look amazing to me too. Um, you know, I'm not one of those I, pixel counters. You know, I don't sit there and analyze everything. You know, oh, this is this looks a little. I'm not really that obsessive at all. I just go by what looks good to me. But certainly, all of those I thought looked particularly impressive. Um, and they've they've done good with some of the Baba films. Although I think there are a few that they could go back and do better yet. And I'm hoping that somebody at some point can go back and give us a better version of Black Sunday in particular, because I think the current master on that is, is not so good. Um, there is work on a, a new master of Whip in the Body, which I'm excited about because the current high-def versions of that are, are, do not look good at all. So in wrapping up here, we're going to do a little kind of free association game I do sometimes where, where I'm going to name, this is a top 10. I'm going to name out a category, best this, best that. And without... Don't overthink it. Just give me the first response that pops into your head, okay? All right, here we go. Best European horror film. Police and the Devil. Most overrated. Ah, uh, most overrated. I hate that. Um, I can't think of one. Yeah, you can think of one movie where everybody's like, "Oh, this is a masterpiece," and you're like, "Nah." nah. Oh, you know what? I'll, no, I'll, I will. I'll say Demon. Okay, there you go. Uh, best contemporary European horror film. How how contemporary is contemporary? Last twenty years. Aren't that many? Um, these are supposed to be. Quick. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm taking <laughs> my time. That's good. Um, twenty years. I, I mean, I'm I'm hard pressed to think of too many that are all that great. I guess I'll just go ahead and say Occhialinari, the new Argento film. I'm sure that's not it, but that's that's what comes to mind. Okay. Uh, best European horror leading lady. Uh, Rizal Benary. Leading man. Mm, George Hilton. Composer. European horror composer. Ennio Morricone. Cinematographer. Mario Bava. Scariest European horror film. Hmm. Let's say Deep Red. Most surprising or shocking European horror film? Um, <laughs> maybe Bay of Blood. Craziest. Craziest. That's a toughie. Um, <laughs> I'm not good at this. Um, <laughs> craziest. Um, you know what? I really, I, I honestly... I can't. Let's talk about craziest and for most gruesome, most visceral, most uh, most gruesome. Uh, probably the New York Ripper. New York Ripper. Well, what are you working on next? What's coming up for you? Uh, well, I'm working with another writer, an Italian writer, Eugenio Ercolani, on a book uh, tentatively called Unsung Heroes, which is about four different directors, um, who didn't make a ton of movies, um. So I'm writing about Massimo D'Alamano and Vittorio Salerno, and he's writing about Giulio Petroni and Franco Rossetti. Um, so we're working on that currently, and also we've got a uh, a 
book uh, coming out, hopefully this summer. I mean, I'm hoping it'll be out within the next couple months. I'll make them die slowly, which is about Umberto Lenzi. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your your uh, various factoids. You you know everything about European horror, so it's certainly a little bit of a crash course for listeners who might not be as familiar. I don't know about everything, but I know a little bit, I guess. You know a fair bit, a fair bit. Um, <laughs> right. I think it's good, too, because I think sometimes, you know, I was telling you that story about, like, you know, a friend of mine being sort of shamed for not knowing Nero's work. And I think sometimes people hear about various subgenres they might not be as familiar with and are sometimes even intimidated to kind of go into those waters. So I think, you know, something like this will help people understand a good place to start. Some of these filmmakers they heard about, some new ones they may not have heard about. And they should, of course, check out right. your books uh, if they want to keep going down that rabbit hole. Well, thank you. Yes, um, you know, hopefully anybody who checks them out will find them interesting and might pick up a thing or two they didn't know. <laughs> All right, Troy, thanks so much. You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and edited by Felipe Ojeda. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously provided by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you, and the most important thing you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, Instagram at all one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. Be sure to post, comment, share, and like, but don't forget, good old fashioned word of mouth still goes a long way. And the best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us friends, family, co workers, whomever, anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>